Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Today, it's all about performance off-road. Yes, we're talking mountain bikes, and we've recruited some of the most talented folks in the sport to help us decipher this niche of cycling, from racecraft to technique to training, and everything in between. What are the most critical elements of short track, cross country, and marathon racing? Our guests take us inside the races. What are the fundamentals to better bike handling on dirt? Our experts have the answers. How can you tell if your fitness or your technique is what's holding you back from making progress? We let you in on a simple trick. Is the training for mountain bike racing any different from road racing? Listen in to find out more about the nuances of off-road performance. We answer those questions and so many more with the help of some of the most recognizable names in the sport today on episode 115. We start our conversation with Payson McKelvin, a two-time cross-country marathon national champion who races for the Orange Seal off-road team. If you haven't found it yet, check out Payson's podcast, The Adventure Stash. We're also joined today by two legends of the sport. Jeff Kabush is a three-time Olympian, a nine-time World Cup podium finisher, including his win at the Bromont World Cup in 2009, and a nine-time Canadian cross-country national champion. Joe Lowell started racing motocross as a kid, then transitioned to the bike, racing professionally for 10 years before slotting into his current role as Shimano's North American mountain bike marketing manager, and he's also an experienced mountain bike skills coach. We also hear today from Steve Neal, the former Canadian national mountain bike coach and co-owner of the Cycling Gym in Toronto to learn more about specific training needs and methods for mountain biking. Check out the Cycling Gym's new website at online.thecyclinggym.com where you can ask Steve and his fellow coaches your training questions. Now get your full fingered gloves. It's time to hit the dirt. Let's make you fast. Pace McKelvin, it's great to have you back on the show. First time we've had you on as our main guest. Welcome to Fast Talk. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's an honor and a privilege to be on the the full show. Uh, I've listened to y'all's podcast for quite a while um, and been a fan of what you do. Um, it definitely scratches the the super nerd bike itch that I have uh, that sometimes people are tired of hearing me talk about. So I'm very happy to be amongst kindred spirits here today. There's probably a lot of people that listen to our show that don't often do much mountain bike racing. I'd love for you to take us inside of the race itself. Give us a feeling for how much different it is, how it compares, how it contrasts to road racing. And I know that there's short track and there's in uh, XC and there's marathon races, but, and if you want to break it down quickly and, and do it that way, that's, that would be, that would be great. Yeah. There are lots of different kinds of, of mountain biking within, uh, and even within each of the disciplines, there's a lot of diversity depending on the, the terrain and the course and all that sort of thing. I was trying to think of an analogy and I've done just enough road racing to, I think maybe come up with a decent analogy. I spent a, spent a lot of time racing, uh, on the road collegiately and that sort of thing. It's sort of like, imagine you start a road race and immediately everyone's in the gutter and there's insane crosswinds and it's blown to smithereens and you're all in echelons. 
and that's the race and you keep doing it until the finish line. Yeah. It's, it's, it's flat out, uh, it's survival and there's a tiny sprinkling of tactics in there, but pretty much it's just survival as fast as you can. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, and, and that goes for every single type of racing. So at the, at the very shortest duration, you have short track, which is basically an off-road criterium typically 20 to 30 minutes long, really, really high speed, often pretty open course, typically too. Unlike cyclocross, there aren't too many tight chicanes, uh, lots of group racing. The start is absolutely make or break. Oh, incredibly hard to move up, especially at the professional level. The energy to go from 10th place to fifth place is basically a race winning effort. So if you're in 10th place, and you have to move up to fifth place, you're probably not going to win that day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Almost no room for error. Uh, pretty tactical, but also lots of different styles of courses. Sometimes it's straight up a minute and a half climb, 45 second descent. Sometimes it's dead flat and 80% pavement. Um, it's just all over the board. But the mm. common theme is that almost no room for error, wicked fast, um, and just deliriously hard because it's 20 to 30 minutes. So something that caught my attention earlier, which Chris is, uh, I think, getting at here as well, is this, um, you toyed a little bit with road cycling, but you decided mountain biking was your thing. I know very few cyclists who do both pretty equally. It seems everybody, most of us try both, but either kind of go, no, I'm a roadie or no, I'm, I'm a mountain biker and, and wanted to dive a little more into what you think drives people in either direction? Yeah, it's a great question. I think some of it is probably cultural, honestly. The vibe at each of those types of races is very different. Also, I think people fall in love with the parkour to an extent. So if you take some of these iconic mountain bike races like the Whiskey 50 or the Leadville 100, people uh, fall in love with what it means to suffer up Columbine for an hour plus, um, and, and try to do your best on your way back to Leadville, uh, with the whiskey off-road people fall in love with the 50 mile event and they fall in love with the seven main stage concerts that happen at that event simultaneously in the big beer garden and the pros fat tire cr criterium race on Friday, which is a huge spectacle. A lot of these, these major mountain bike races are, are events. They're, they're more than a bike race. And I think that draws a certain kind of people. Also, um, there are mountain bikers who just really love to shred trail and want some payoff for all of their suffering on the way up. Um, mm -hmm. I think there is some crossover, but you're, you're very right. And actually, honestly, we see that in gravel to an extent also, um, mm -hmm. I've been curious to see how many folks start crossing over between the two. But if I go to a major gravel event, um, there aren't too many familiar faces uh, as compared to the mountain bike races I go to. I think some of it is, is uh, you know, we're, we're tribal <laughs> to an extent and you inevitably start to understand the nuances of what it takes to get better at something when you start getting to those upper levels, getting better at something really demands focusing on the details. Um, and to be a competitive mountain biker, you really have to be razor sharp in terms of bike handling stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's been interesting to see some of the, some of the road uh, folks or even gravel folks 
uh, take a swing at some of these big mountain bike races. And obviously the, a lot of them have huge engines, whether it's Peter Stetna or Travis McCabe did one, did whiskey offered a couple of years ago, those 15 to 20 seconds that you lose on a descent, um, in one of these major races is make or break. Um, and so you've just got to focus hundred percent on all of the race craft if you want to be the best at something. And I think that goes for all the disciplines. Yeah, I think that's a huge point. And I think we'll get to that sort of the technical side of this, which is a huge component here later. It's it's interesting to see people like Lachlan Morton and Alex Howes going to, they didn't get a chance to do it, but they went down to South Africa, South Africa for uh, Cape Epic. And you're seeing more of this, this um, crossover taking place. But point being, those guys have, great engines they don't really have the experience or technical skills to compete at a high level and and you know after talking with them i knew how nervous they were going down to a place like that to try to com yeah. compete at that level without the technical background for sure and it goes both ways i mean i've i had an opportunity at well in hindsight it it would have been canceled anyway but i had an opportunity to guest ride with uh one of the biggest teams in the world uh, this spring for some lower level, obviously they weren't classics, but road races, some of the insanely hard European road races that no one's heard of. Um, and I was pretty intrigued by it and it seemed like there was some energy behind it, but I also knew how off the back I was going to be in regards <laughs> to the, the, the race craft. Yeah, yeah, exactly. On paper, my engine should stack up well enough to, to hang in there. But in terms of knowing how much before a roundabout to move up, uh, how much it's okay to lean on someone else to, to get through a gap. Like these are things that mountain bikers don't really know <laughs> and only are learned by being in that sort of environment and rising to the occasion. So all of the stuff, you know, that I just mentioned where, uh, you know, Lachlan or, or Travis or whoever else, when they jump into a mountain bike race and they lose 20, 30 seconds on a descent, the exact same phenomenon happens just in a slightly different way if I were to try to go race a high-level road race. So I still remember when I moved to uh, Victoria in British Columbia, uh, like two weeks after I got there, I had the most awful experience I've ever had on a bike in my life when two very high-level cyclists or mountain bikers who I didn't know were really high-level mountain bikers invited me to <laughs> what's called the dump north of Victoria, which is this incredibly technical, all-rocks mm -hmm. uh, uh, mountain bike park. Like There are trails there. I, I tried. I couldn't even get off my bike and walk them. Uh, and I was watching these guys do 10 foot drops, do all this insane stuff. And, and I commented to them later. I'm like, you guys are insane. You have no fear. I go, what are yeah. you talking about? It's like, you guys on, on road bikes, I could never do that. Like, you're going <laughs> skinny tires, 70 kilometers and... an hour down a descent. And if a guy crashes in front of you, you're dead. Yeah. And it just, it's the perspective. To them, what they were doing was like, oh, whatever, it's just a 10 foot drop. Yeah, right. But what we do is insane, <laughs> where I'm looking at them going, I would even walk that. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's very true. And it's very interesting that we get so used to specific types of danger and then it becomes second yeah. nature right absolutely and it's all relative it's all relative i mean i remember vividly when i went to europe for the first time when i was 17 years old and did my first uh high level european mountain bike race like uci mountain bike race and i climbed up 
to the high point of the course and dropped into the descent and must have stopped seven or eight times on the way down, looking down these drops and shoots that I legitimately didn't know a mountain bike was capable of going down, <laughs> let alone, let alone a cross country mountain bike. Yeah, right. And it just completely reset my understanding of what this racing is. And to be honest, that's still one of the reasons that uh, United States mountain bikers are a little bit hamstrung um, in regards to our ability to compete um, overseas is because the United States just does not make hard mountain bike courses technically. Like mm -hmm. it, it, it does not, um, <laughs> it's just not the same game. And these kids over in Europe are, you know, they take their training wheels off and they're sending world cup courses basically. And we have so much catch up to do. Uh, and you see riders like Kate Courtney, uh, break through at the very highest level. And they did that because they went over to Europe and grounded out and dedicated themselves to learning and catching up. But every single United States mountain biker is working with a certain handicap in a way, because for whatever reason, uh, you know, the folks that run UCI races here in the United States just have not uh, made them as hard, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Chris sat down with two legends of mountain biking, Joe Lowell and Jeff Kabush, to learn about some of the necessary technical skills it takes to go fast off-road. First question I guess I would ask, if you're sort of new to the sport, what are the basic skills that you need to be a decent mountain bike rider or racer uh, everything from body position to um you know cornering skills those types of things joe let's start with you wow that that is not a, a simple topic there's so many things to think about honestly uh, i mean your very first things is is your overall body positioning the the basic elbows up and out in a, an attack position but but mountain biking is so different from a road bike because mountain bike, you're constantly moving. Uh, I, I would compare it to a boxer in a, in a boxing ring. If the boxer just stands there, they're going to get, you know, knocked out. So road bike, you can get away with a single position. You know, you move your hand position on your bars, but that's about it. And uh, mountain bikes just completely different if you don't move around and and follow the contours of the trail you get in trouble really quickly so so the the first basic is find your uh, that comfortable neutral position on the bike and and be ready to move so as soon as the bike starts to go down a hill you need to let your weight come backwards uh, I, I push people in some of my drills to to when we go down a section I want to see you push that front end out and get your butt and just basically, yeah, your butt, aim it to get as low as possible to where you're almost trying to touch your back tire with your butt. Because if you don't force yourself to do that, you're hitting this imaginary wall and you think you're far back and low, but you're really not. And you're putting yourself into a vulnerable position. So, so I really like to emphasize anybody when they start to go down a trail to just be constantly moving and don't be afraid to get your weight really far back. Constantly move that bike. It, you, you, you're not a passenger. You're, you're in charge of this ride. And, and that's the biggest thing I, I see is, is people just looking like a sack of potatoes on their bike. Yeah. They have, you have to be much more active 
yeah, much more active. What I'm hearing from you and what I know from experience is that you have to be a, a very active rider given, given the terrain and the trails that you're riding and, um, not just wait for the trail to do something to you, but anticipate it and actively address it with body position, breaking bias, etc. Yeah, anticipating is a really good word. Anticipate what's coming and, and, and do something to compensate for that. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of uh, putting weight into the tires. When you're going down a hill and coming to a stop and you're on the brakes, you want to have a stiff upper body with, with, you know, to, to brace yourself but you really want to dig your heels down. So uh, a lot of times your heels will, will drop really, really far down. And, and it's basically, you need to do that to, to brace yourself and to push pressure into the tire. So you need to always be focusing anytime you're cornering or slowing down on, on how you're putting pressure into the tires. And um, that's another mistake that I see a lot of people doing is, as as they're not weighting the, the tires and, and that's where that tire pressure comes in key, where once you start having some technique and you're, and you're putting pressure into your tires so that they can actually do something and grab that dirt, you, you'll, you'll find out that your low tire pressure might not work so much now that you're putting some real input into the bike. So sometimes you have to bump that pressure up a little bit so that you don't fold those tires over. But that's a, that's a really important thing and um, not to be ignored at all. Yeah, I think that's one of those habits from if a if a road cyclist is coming over to mountain biking is a, a habit they have to break where on a road bike if you're cornering sometimes uh, you know really driving your front end into the corner is actually going to lead you to lose traction your your uh contact patch or whatever the the there's a breaking point where you will lose traction and the front end will go out from under you and that's a bad very bad thing but obviously that can happen on a mountain bike too given the terrain but there is a, an amount of pressure you need to apply to the front end to have the tire bite into the ground get traction so that you can carve through that corner yeah you definitely can't be timid and afraid to to put some pressure into that front tire because that's definitely key and then as you get better and you start you know learning to read the terrain and follow the contours and putting pressure into the, into the bike when you corner, uh, you really, I, I said it already a couple of times, but you really need to have your mental game focused on the trail. And you do have to spend some time to do some, some muscle learning and um, basic techniques to make sure you're, you know, in the right position. But once you start kind of getting into that right position, you can't overanalyze all these things. Like, am I dropping my heel enough? Am I putting enough pressure into it? It'll start coming natural and you just want to focus on the ride. And, and just sometimes you have to remind yourself to, to do those little things. Uh, I still, to this day, once in a while, I'll be like, geez, I'm really sliding around. Oh yeah, I was getting lazy. I, I wasn't really putting a lot of pressure into the tires, but um, the, the mental game is so important. Paul, the punter, does some really great YouTube videos. And he, he did a segment where uh, he actually, uh, with a, a, a downhill racer, told him, you need to just sing. The, the point was to get your mind off of all the analyzing of what you're doing and just sing to get your mind so you just ride natural. Mm, and, and so whatever it takes to ride natural and just be reacting, 
Because when you're walking down the street, you don't think about putting your foot in front of the next. You just do it. So you need to get to a point where you just ride your bike so you can enjoy it to the most. Describe the fundamental principles of braking because I don't think a lot of people get this either. I think they probably pull both levers simultaneously and that's as much thought as they put into it. But that's, it's, it's not that easy. There's a lot of nuance here and, and ca- maybe counterintuitively for a lot of people, the front brake is a really important thing here. It's not just a secondary element to the back brake. For sure. I mean, there's a lot more power in the front brake. Um, if there's, there's traction, I mean, I think the biggest thing is making sure you, you adjust your, your controls first to get that comfortable. So you can have your hands relaxed on the, the brake so you can feather it. Cause it, a lot of braking on the mountain bike is kind of feathering the, the brake. And it's not like you're on tarmac and a car with really good traction. So you have to feather the braking and adjust the, the front rear bias, depending on the, the train and how much traction you have. Um, for sure. If you're going in a, in a straight line, um, on a steep, steep uh, slab or something, you can really rely on the, the front brake. But if you're somewhere like uh, here last summer, racing, racing in, in Truckee, North Star, it's just complete powder dust. And the, the using the front brake too much just causes you to lose, lose traction, wash out. So you have to kind of read the train and figure out how much bite you're going to be able to get, the, get in the tire and uh, use the, the front and, and brake bias. Uh, the brakes bias depending on on how much traction and so that's a lot of experience and just um, time on the trail to find that that sweet spot to kind of the like the body position find the balance front and rear and how much force you can apply yeah it's really terrain dependent you know I, I like to do a little a little brake check when I get on my bike when I start down a trail maybe a trail I'm not too familiar with or the dirt's different it actually dirt changes daily depending on the moisture in the air and those sort of things. And I just like to do like a little slow down uh, a couple times, maybe a couple little brake checks, maybe kick the bike sideways a couple times, just lightly on the trail, just to get a feel so that I can see what this dirt is doing. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like when you're uh, driving in the snow or icy roads, it's always good when you pull the driveway to, match the brakes and see where the, the braking point of your tires are kind of mm-hmm. get a, a feel for how much traction there is and yeah, how comfortable you are. Just like your tires, you know, get used to same thing with the, you're running some new tires and new pressures to kind of do some kind of cutties on the trail to kind of find, find the limits. And then you, you know, how, how hard you can push your, your tires or your brakes on the trail considering yep. the conditions. Yeah. That little, throwing the back end out a little bit, doing a little brake test. I see that as equivalent to the the golfer licking his finger and sticking it up in the air and testing the wind. That's kind of like the, you just do that. Would you say it's fair, uh, it's a fair assessment to say that a lot of mountain biking, when it t- comes to the, the skills of mountain biking, is about carrying your speed versus making that speed? So, for example, it's about learning how much you break going into a corner so that you can carry speed through that corner versus over-breaking 
slowing down, taking the corner, and then having to accelerate more out of the corner, as an example? One of the most enjoyable things to learn is reading the trail mountain bike. I've done a lot of blind enduro, and it's just a really fun experience. I mean, it's the biggest thing I try to remind beginners is looking ahead, scanning the trail so you can predict what's coming up, so you know when you can let off the brakes earlier, or if there's a switchback coming and you can set up for the corner a little wider and carry speed. And um, it's really a kind of subtle skill that's really fun to learn when you can kind of read a trail and slow down it and carry your speed. And it's something, yeah, you just got to keep, I still at this point in my career, you know, racing for 25 years is forcing myself to try to look look further ahead on the trail so I can read it and predict and carry my speed and, and flow through sections. And that's, uh, yeah, I used to hate riding trails blind, but now I really enjoy riding a blind trail because it really forces me to try to look ahead, read the trail and predict how, how it's going to develop. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the Trans Cascadia race series that is a once a year thing, multi-days that is really cool because it, I mean, I've been riding for years, but going to that race alone, uh, cause it's day after day of blind racing and so many stages, you just, it sharpens your, your bike skills so much because like he says, it, it forces you to, to really look ahead and, and just be just absorbing this terrain as you're at going at speed. And it, it's a, it's a really cool, uh, kind of a breakthrough for me in some ways. Um, to, to force myself to do that, that sometimes it takes a race situation to, to really get you to, to, to push those limits. Um, but you know, something else also worth pointing out is with these bigger wheels that we've got, like the 29ers, it takes more energy to get them up to speed. So if you can focus your riding on carrying speed, uh, you're definitely going to be benefiting on using less energy, especially on rolling hills. I, I see people breaking on a section where you can clearly see it's going to open up and, and then go up again. And so um, when you're getting used to, to riding more, you, you always want to be looking really far ahead and think, okay, I can just let go and then start pedaling. So I've always said, you know, pedal those downhills as soon as you see that it's clear. And, and in a cornering situation, if, if you kind of see how it's opening up and it looks like it's going to be good, get off those brakes as quickly as possible just so that you can carry that speed. And to me, it's actually more fun to be riding like that. One thing that's somewhat unique or, or different from, from road cycling about mountain biking is I think there's just more, there's more chance that you might crash. And I think that that is almost not a necessity, but in order to progress in mountain biking, I think you have to uh, expect some crashing. Maybe it's light. Maybe it's not so light. But to push the, the your abilities to get more comfortable, um, pushing the envelope, so to speak. Would you agree with that? Is is crashing almost a necessity to progress here, or is that? Am I looking at it the wrong way? Well, I, I can definitely say that um, crashing on a mountain bike is not the same as crashing on a road bike. So on a road bike, like that's one of your number one goals is do not crash. But on a mountain bike, you can get away with crashing 
and and it's not a big deal. Uh, you really do. It's kind of like the, the cutties that Jeff referred to. Um, and like me, when I said I kind of slide the bike around a little bit so I can get a feel for things. Yeah, don't be so afraid of, of crashing. You do want to uh, acknowledge, like if you're like, oh, wow, I'm getting in trouble. Okay, I'm going down. You don't want to just stiffen up and close your eyes. You know, think of like ride like a cat. And, and if you do get in trouble, you know, look for branches to hold on to or, or look for that soft spot. Fight it to the bitter end. Don't just wait for the crash to happen. And, and really don't be too freaked out about crashing because then you're going to be riding stiff and and not you know letting loose a little bit and because you you kind of do need to let loose but you want to pick and choose where you're letting loose pacific northwest has lots of really nice soft dirt and and so those are places i would be a little more inclined to to maybe test the waters a little bit more because if i do crash i can just you know smash into some soft loam or you know <laughs> nice dirt and it's right. like wow that was cool and you know you do need to do a little bit of that so so don't be embarrassed don't freak out i, I do see people they they, they do a crash and, and they just jump on their bike and they panic and try and get going again because they're embarrassed you know i don't do that take a second do a quick check make sure you're cool look at your bike because if you've been to a cross-country race or even enduro race or downhill race, and you've seen somebody crash, the adrenaline's pumping, they jump on their bike, they don't know their chain's off, and they go to pedal, and then they flip right over the front again. Right, yep. Um, so give a second, just assess the situation, you know, oh, I'm cool, laugh about it, and try again. Yeah, I mean, I'd echo, I'm, I'm way more scared of crashing on the road than the mountain bike. But I think, uh, I mean, the important thing is if you're, yeah, pushing yourself is, it's great to progress, but don't try to take too big a steps. The biggest thing for me when I'm looking at a technical section, I have to be able to picture it in my head. And if I can't picture it in my head, then I'll, I'll leave it for another day. The nice thing these days, there's like so many cool like terrain parks uh, where you can go and work on different skills, whether it's drops and they go from small to large and you can kind of work your way up or if you're working on jumping you can go and try like a two foot tabletop a five foot a ten foot and kind of work your way up until you're comfortable so yeah you don't want to go out and then make a huge leap to like a 20 foot gap over a creek you want to like uh, <laughs> right. work your comfort level up but it's i mean that's one of the funnest things about mountain biking is gradually pushing your your limit and progressing and you look back on what you used to think was hard and now it's uh you do it without thinking and uh, that's a fun part of the sport i mean i'm still learning and pushing myself and there there's always something new to work on i'll start with you joe what do you think are the best ways to improve your skills as a mountain biker is it watching youtube videos is it hitting the skills park or you know riding with friends of yours or or just people that are better than you and watching them, learning from them, or is it all of these things? Oh, I think it's definitely all of these things. There's progression for sure. So you you need to definitely know some basics. So if, if you're really green to mountain biking, it's definitely worth watching some YouTube videos, take classes. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of great resources out there and, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to discount having an instructor there 
in person to, to kind of look at you. But like I know Ryan Leach is someone we've worked with for years and and he has a boatload of, of videos that that really do make a difference. Um, but once you have the basic idea, there, then you just got to just keep trying, keep riding. Um, skills parks are, are great, too. But it's just as much as anything, it, you just need to keep trying and practicing. Sometimes I'll even just go out into the street in front of my driveway and just practice little manuals and, and, you know, balance and, and get tuned up once in a while. Uh, just as much as I can be on the bike as possible, uh, it all makes a difference. And, you know, the one other thing you mentioned about riding with people that are faster than you, when you're ready and, and you're starting to be kind of active, uh, that is definitely one of the, one of the greatest tools. I kind of almost group that with with pushing yourself in a race situation or, or even uh, racing blind, like the Trans Cascadia event, where it really pushes you to just be like ultra focused. And when you're riding with those faster people, you know, you see, well, that guy did it. You know, I want to do that. And uh, that, that definitely helps. So I, I would definitely urge anybody once they kind of feel uncomfortable is to seek out those faster riders and, and try and, you know, hang, hang with them and, and, and elevate your game a little bit? Yeah, no, it's a tough question. I think everyone learns in different ways. Like myself, I learn a lot from like watching other proficient people in different sports. Um, but I think in the end, like it's just, it just takes time to get that, that feeling. It's, there's a lot of just subtle um, skills on the mountain bike and body position. And, and in the end, it just takes a lot of time, but it's certainly great to do especially if you're trying to progress some different skills uh in a terrain park where things are built built really well um and, and safely it's a, a great place to kind of push yourself and progress especially if you're getting your wheels off the ground but um yeah i mean i think it's it's great to if you have a local bike shop and uh mentors in your community to go on rides and learn and uh push yourself it's just uh yeah, I think uh, don't be afraid to make yourself a little uncomfortable because that's how you kind of kind of progress, keep pushing yourself. Yeah, de definitely seek out those better riders. You know, almost every bike shop has group rides and they've got those go-to guys or seek out somebody who's been racing. You can usually pick up a, a lot from those people that have all that experience. I, I think that's a, a great, great thing to, to try and, seek out getting back to the racecraft side here it was interesting to me that you said in the shortest of the mountain bike disciplines short track there is sometimes some group racing there is a little mm. bit of tactics involved which makes sense to me i've seen that uh, let's like take a look at xc how much group racing is going on there? How much tactics is going on there? How critical is the start there? Take us through an XC race and the elements. Yeah. So in terms of just quickly, in terms of group racing and short track, it's almost just like you end up in groups, but you can't do too much together because it's so flat out that uh, you're basically, it's just like dangling. <laughs> it's like the last two laps of a crit the whole time. But anyway, um, for XC, the start is absolutely very critical. Um, and if you're not, say, top 
10 maybe and i'm talking more at a professional level right now if you're not top top 10 top 15 uh in that first lap the chances of winning are very low what's interesting though is if you're if you're 40th or 50th so you you crash at the start or have a minor mechanical whatever if you're 40th or 50th we see all the time that riders are able to put in incredible rides and finish top 10 maybe even top five but that difference between fifth and first is really significant because the the folks that didn't have to sort through traffic and, and catch up, you know, we just weren't expending that energy. Um, the thing about XC, I think that, and modern XC that makes it so unique these days is in terms of group dynamics, there isn't a whole lot of tactical stuff going on uh, in the traditional sense, like drafting, that sort of thing. But where tactics really do shine through is assessing where you have an edge on your competition and using that like using the part of the course where you're a little bit better minimizing the damage on the part of the course where you're not as good and really being in tune with those dynamics so for example if you're if you're recognizing that you're pulling out a five second gap on a descent on a rider that you're just locked in with lap after lap after lap Um, a good racer will attack on the climb before that and pull out maybe three seconds. I mean, that's how these things are at the highest level is it's just, it's like cyclocross. It's just a game of, of seconds. You pull out just a few seconds and then you use that ensuing descent where you get five seconds to make it an eight second gap. And oftentimes for the first time or two that you do that, that eight second gap is, is closed back down. Um, but if you do that enough laps in a row or you do that on enough sections, eventually that other rider just can't make up that small gap again. The real critical thing here is developing the skills to attack and completely redline yourself up that climb and then somehow drive your bike effectively down the <laughs> right. ensuing technical descent. Yeah. So that I think that's where mountain biking gets really, really unique. And I actually had this conversation with Neil Rogers at one point where he said he thinks really the, the, the pinnacle of athleticism in cycling is XC mountain biking um, because it requires this vast bank of, of skill sets and fitness types in a really compacted environment. Um, and you got bodies flying around and, and every course is different. And, um, you know, your, your heart rate is at 180 on the climb and on the descent, it goes to 178. It's, it's just, uh, an insane pressure cooker. And if you make one, it's sort of like short track. If you make one significant error, it's pretty much over. So it is a very unique, interesting style of racing in that regard. And, and so the tactics here, like you're saying, are playing to your strengths in a way and, and identifying that after you've, um, you know, a lot of the courses that you're racing on are known, known entities, known quant, they're, they're something you've done before and you have experience on and they probably don't change year to year too much. So you yeah, already yeah. know, Hey, I, I can outclimb this guy a little bit here if I attack and then that descent plays to my strengths. So I'm going to, that's, you know, if I do that enough times in the race, I might break him psychologically or I might make a mistake trying to catch back on, or I can save it to the last lap, do what I've done time and again. And I know that there's a really good chance that that's going to pay off and I'm going to hold the gap to the line. So that's sort of the, the tactical, uh, considerations at play in an XC race. Oftentimes, is that what I'm hearing? 
Yeah. In terms of pacing, there's really no, there, in, in my experience, there really aren't, tactics aren't uh, all that relevant. <laughs> the, the rider that can ride the most consistent laps typically is going to come out on top and, and also saving something in the back pocket in terms of creativity. So a lot of times, especially at the World Cup level, the, the courses have uh, sections that are very wide and have tons and tons of line choice. And uh, I've seen many other riders and I've done, the, done this once or twice also where you might be practicing the course in the days beforehand and you're sort of keeping an eye on the other lines that your competition is taking in practice. And you might identify a line that takes five seconds out of a descent, three seconds out of a descent. And maybe you ride it in secret one time just to make sure you can do it. Mm -hmm. And then you don't do it at all during the race until the moment where you want to try to make the difference. And that five seconds can be the difference maker if timed correctly. And then also there's the psychological element of your competition going, whoa, I did not know that that was a possible line and I'm thrown off. What else does my competition know that I don't? Yeah. Um, so stuff like that happens too. Um, but in terms of tactical, like, you know, a, a lot of these teams have multiple riders and there's not a whole lot you can do teammate wise. Um, you got to remember that these courses are so stupid hard that the absolute strongest riders in the world are doing like 400 plus average Watts normalized for 90 minutes and are averaging like nine miles per hour. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's just, it's heinous. It's like an obstacle course where you're just going flat out and trying to keep a relatively fragile bike in one piece, which is a whole other element. The one question I have about that, the, there's no real team tactics that you can do. Just from the limited experience I've had racing mountain biking, it does seem like the shorter the event, the more ability there actually is to do something a bit as a team. So I look at an event like short track, I have seen actually team tactics pulled there. I certainly experienced myself when I was racing collegiate where they all figured out I had a big engine but no skills. Mm. So one of the teams simply, they three of them worked together and they had their fourth teammate sit back with me and make sure I went through every line wrong. And when I <laughs> tried to get around him, to his credit, he crashed both of us into a log. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it seems like yeah. when you're in tight quarters you can do i mean it's almost disruptive but you can do a little bit as a team to uh guide one another through the course and also to to interfere with your competition or is that just not something you see no for sure for sure um i i think of it more in terms of the type of course than the duration so for example at the Leadville 100, there are tons of tactics because there's so much drafting. Uh, at Short Track Nationals last year in uh, Winter Park, there were a lot of tactics also uh, because it was 60, 70% pavement and pretty open. And so despite the fact that, you know, Leadville is six plus hours and Short Track Nationals was 30 minutes, uh, you could see some of the same tactical scenarios there. If you take a, a different mountain bike race that is also six plus hours, maybe the Park City point to point, for example, where there's like 14,000 feet of climbing and it's 100% single track, there are no tactics whatsoever. 
if you take, um, or traditional tactics whatsoever, I should say, if you take a, a different short track race, um, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I can't remember where, where the event was, but we had a short track national champs that was really tight and had a lot of single track and was technical and had a steep climb. There wasn't really an opportunity too much for, for tactics there either, um, because even if there were a couple of teammates in the, in the race together, the chances of them both being on the front line and doing any sort of blocking or that sort of thing, um, they could maybe try to pull that off. But if you get too fancy, the race is so short that you're just as likely to shoot yourself in the foot in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the times that I witnessed some pretty hilarious tactics actually, and this was a very specific scenario. And this is one of the things that I think in it, going back to why I chose mountain biking, I love the tactics of road cycling, which is one of the reasons that I'm drawn to gravel these days. But I also love all of the different decisions that need to be made in mountain biking, whether it's equipment wise, whether it's reading the course, like we've talked about reading your competition, just circumstantial stuff. I mean, even, even uh, if you know that it's going to rain halfway through a race and making equipment choices that will benefit you in, in that second half of the race when it's wet and taking some, some sacrifice the first half of the race when it's dry, stuff like that stuff that really veteran racers do that I think is cool. I mean, still, I had a, I had a conversation with Jeffica Bush not too long ago where he, we were talking about tire pressure and uh, a lot of these epic rides events that we do start early in the morning and, and have these massive elevation differences. So we started as an example in Carson city, Nevada at 4,000 feet of elevation, 8 AM in the morning, the top of the course was just under 10,000 feet. So we spent the entire first hour and a half of the race climbing and there's just massive temperature difference. Like literally we were hiking through snow banks at the top of the race. And at the bottom, it's this desert arid scorcher environment. And he has so much experience and he's such a veteran racer that he was thinking about his tire pressure. Um, for those of y'all that know your gas laws, <laughs> this right. will resonate. Yes. He was, he was picking tire pressure that, that would be not ideal at the bottom of the course, but when the race was being made at the top of that course where the, where the, everyone was tired and we're dropping into the technical descents, that's when his tire pressure would be correct. Um, stuff like that, that, if you're riding in the 20th to 30th place won't really make a difference. But if the margins between first and second are, are 15 seconds, that literally could be what wins the race. And that's the stuff that, that I, that I really love about mountain biking of, of all events. One of the places that I've seen tactics played most beautifully was at the single speed world championships. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that event, but it's, it's this hilarious semi underground, cultural phenomenon that's been going on since the mid nineties, uh, where it's half party, half bike race. Uh, the winners, uh, get a mandatory tattoo, um, huge underground bragging rights. Not Not everybody gets that tattoo. Some people have backed out on that and they're posers. Really? Who? Yeah. Oh yeah. Here's my bragging rights. I still hold the largest losing margin at that race. (laughs) (laughs) What was that margin? Uh, 40 minutes on the guy's second last. Oh, wow. And here's a little fact for you. I wasn't even at the race. Okay. (laughs) This was before the days of Zwift. So you weren't on Zwift. So we drove down. It was 
three of us that drove down, and one of my friends won the race. Where was it? This this, this is when it was in, in Portland. Okay. And okay. so you know how they have the time trial the day before to qualify? Mm-hmm. Well, so my one of my friends who came down with us, he was the one who's like, we got to go down, we got to go down, down and do this event. He didn't qualify. I qualified, my other friend qualified, and I felt really bad about that because I'm like, I just came down to party. He, he, he actually wants to do this. Right? Yeah. So I just handed him my number and said, go have fun. So he's in the race, the actual race the next day. He's not doing well <laughs> with my number. But there's this very cute girl on the side of the course who keeps catcalling him every time he goes by. He's a good-looking guy. So he figures, I'm not doing well. He pulls over in the middle of the race, talks with her for about 30, 40 minutes. Yeah, why, why wouldn't you? And then goes and finishes the races. So you look at the results from 2008. I finished insanely down. <laughs> You're, That's one of the most uh, wonderful single speed world stories I've heard. I mean, that is right on brand for that event. Payson, were you talking about single speed mountain bike worlds? Or yeah. Yeah. Single, and single you're talking about world cyclocross world. worlds, That's I right, bet. There are both. So there are two different yes. things. So we're actually mixing that. our uh, stories up here. But, but still, still has the tattoo, everything. Yeah. Very similar vibe, I think, at both of these things. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's funny you mentioned the girl thing too, because that wasn't the story I was going to tell, but uh, I rolled up to pretty much the latest I've ever gotten to a start line by accident because I misinterpreted the in, the instructions of where the start line was. And that coupled with uh, the multiple days beforehand of, of uh, liver openers. Drinking. <laughs> liquor openers <laughs> yes um uh, anyway point being i roll up to the start literally as they're saying go and just sort of roll in and i have my my phone on me um which wasn't the plan uh don't usually race with my phone and i was a little afraid that it was going to bounce out yeah so i just i just hand it to this woman that's watching the the start of the race and I say, hey, uh, this is my name. Uh, I hope we can find each other at the, the end of the race. She was just the first person I saw and I handed it to her and ended up being a pretty cute girl. And she took <laughs> she took a bunch of photos of herself on my phone nice. and then <laughs> and then and then left her number in my there phone. There you go. And wow. so uh, I guess this is just a this is just a, a single speed world thing. But anyway, quickly, tactical story from single speed world. <laughs> um, I like the transition. We had this. We had this uh, awesome, uh, awesome year in, in Bend, uh, 2018 for Single Speed Worlds. And um, one of the local pros in Bend, Oregon is Carl Decker. Mm-hmm. And uh, his teammate, Stephen Davis, who's a very good friend of mine, also lives here in Durango, was also racing. And the race developed and we ended up uh, in this group of three late in the race. Carl literally was putting on the race and designed the course. So I should have been on high alert i was not as on high alert as i should have been and so steven is leading carl is second i'm third that's my first mistake lots of single track <laughs> we've got about maybe 10 10 miles to go one thing i loved about this of this single speed version of worlds also is that it was long it was real bike racing i think it was over 40 miles which was really cool it wasn't a wasn't a, a an exhibition event by any means um and so we're going through this tight single track and slowly, but surely Steven is opening a gap on Carl. And my first thought is great. 
Carl's at his limit. Uh, I know at very worst I'm second strongest because I'm not on the limit right now. Um, and the gap keeps opening, keeps opening. And then all of a sudden I realize Carl is one KG veteran racer. Hmm. He is totally blocking for Steven right now. And he's hoping Steven goes and gets this tattoo. And so I spend the next 15 minutes trying every trick in the book to get around Carl, but this, the single track is so tight and he is knows the trail so well that it was almost impossible to get around him. I finally get around him and have a second, uh, really frustrating realization, which is that we are on single speeds, which means that on flat trail, there's a major speed limit. Yeah. Yes. And so all of a sudden, Steven and I are just in this, who can spin the gear faster competition. And, uh, I'm pulling back just painfully slow time, like one second, every five minutes, it feels like. Um, fortunately for me, the end of the the course got pretty challenging with some tough climbs and I was able to bring him back, but, um, it was, uh, it was hilarious to me because of all events, single speed world championships, you know, theoretically the most, uh, relaxed, um, event in mountain bike history had these tactics between two teammates. And at the end of the day, winning single speed worlds does matter. And especially for a brand like giant who Steven and, and, Carl ride for, you know, that's a storyline that they can really promote and, and market. And so at the end of the day, even though single speed worlds is a big party, they were out there to win the race and they were going to, I think they sensed that I was the strongest that day. And so they were doing everything they could to win the race. Uh, despite that, <laughs> you have the tattoo. Yeah, I do have the tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> the, the people that didn't get the tattoo were on the cyclocross side. I don't, I don't know it. If uh, anybody's on the mountain bike single speed worlds has skipped out on it, it's it's only on the other side. So, so we won't name you names. would be shunned for the rest of time. Yeah, if you skipped out on that. <laughs> so the the other side of of my story is my other friend who drove down with us, Drew. He was sitting third place the entire race behind the the tree trunks. Trevin mm-hmm. and uh, yep. who was the other giant? Wicks, Barry Wicks. Yeah. And the two of them got into this argument as they were coming to the finish line because neither of them won the tattoo. So they're, they're actually like, <laughs> you win. No, you win. And while they're arguing, my friend's catching them and he just goes, I'll take a tattoo and blows by them and yeah. wins the race. Oh, nice. That's amazing. That is awesome. I spoke with Steve Neal, the former Canadian national mountain bike coach and co-owner of The Cycling Gym, which is going online at online.thecyclinggym.com. To learn more about the specific training methods for mountain bike racing, let's listen in. So any general thoughts to start with? I think one of the first things that I try to identify, because there's so much information out there that people are always trying to get fitter, and this might sound silly, but you know, people always focus on their fitness. and there's a couple of things that where I think focusing solely on fitness, people run into trouble. Uh, I guess to keep this simple, one of them would be focusing on power-based training without looking at the torque of the sport. So they just kind of focus on power and they go do intervals and, and who cares what kind of program or philosophy you believe in, but they, they build a program, they base it on power and then they just hit these power numbers to do intervals and they, as an example, they might do VO2 max intervals, but at high RPM, because that's often what you might read on the internet, keep the RPM high. And yet when you're pushing that power in a mountain bike race, it's not going to be at 110 RPM. 
So I think the one problem people make with kind of training plans and using a power meter is they, they, they don't think about how the power is generated and what the torque is when they need to generate that power on a mountain bike versus a road bike. So that's one thing I really like to look at. And the other is, um, if we just use any kind of testing, if you want to do an MAP test or you want to do a 20-minute time trial or a 30-minute time trial or a lactate test, it doesn't really matter. But if you have some fairly popular testing methodology that's usually done indoors or on a flatter road or a steady climb to get this number, I like people to do that, to have a physiological test, whatever that might be, so they can be consistent. But then I also want them to build a mountain bike course and it should be have a, a good variety, right? So it should be 30% up, 30% down, 30% flat, kind of like the world of cross-country skiing because that's sort of how mountain bike courses are. And it should have some double track, some single track, and some technical sections. And, and then I, I usually like this course to be approximately 10 to 15 minutes in length. And then I have them do a time trial on that course. So in the same period of time that you might do the physiological test, you would also then go do this mountain bike race time trial on your own and you would have um you'd have a time. And so if if a person's uh whatever, if the person's LT2 goes up, you know, 18%, but their time trial gets worse by 2%, then you have to really take a step back and say, okay, well, your, your physiological self is coming along nicely, but you're not able to apply that fitness to go faster on a mountain bike. So then if, if I have a person with this discrepancy, then I would take a block of time and work on skills and more mountain biking in the program and try to figure out how to improve the time on the mountain bike, which is ultimately the goal. And I would probably check in on the physiological side and see, okay, well, we lost 4% in the test, but we've gained 7% in the time trial. So now we're ahead as a person. Does that make sense? It does. And that's actually a really great way to separate out how much of, uh, how much of this is physiological versus how much of this is, is skills and technical and, and, and mindset. Uh, when you can look at the the changes physiologically, but then compare that to how they're doing out in the trail. That, that's a great idea. Yes, yeah, so that's that's one of the first things I look at, I guess, is trying to create this physical side versus real world side. Because, you know, I've seen people get 20% better in testing and then get no the 0% better on their bicycle. So, so I've seen that. And then, the, you know, you can see the other side where the person's extremely talented um, technically and, and yet they just, they can't improve their fitness. So therefore they could afford more time away from the mountain bike to improve their fitness to then apply back to that already awesome skill. The torque thing I think is important. I was going to ask you, do you have any particular workouts that you do to really focus on that? I like to do a lot of, I guess what I'd call progressively building endurance workouts. So let's take a three hour mountain bike ride where the first hour I might ask the athlete to stay on flat train and stay below, you know, 75% of their max heart rate. Or if they have a, a power meter, I might ask for a certain normalized power. That's not my, I, I would always say the first hour should not be muscular, but I want you to ride fast and have fun. 
And then the second hour, I would have them build that pace where they're going to ride exactly the same on the flats and the descents, but they're going to push the climbs a little bit more, but you know, not race pace, but just below it where they could keep going if they wanted. And then I generally push that pretty late into the ride. And then I might have them end it with a 20 minute time trial. I use that a lot actually, but I want them to do it in like building in train. So hillier and hillier train or harder and harder pace in the hills. When I do that kind of a workout, I usually, I always want self-selected RPM. So I would never restrict them or tell them to make it really low or sit or stand. I want them to just be very natural. So that's one thing I use a lot is progressive building workouts, but all off-road and usually in harder train as the workout goes. Another one is tempo on the road. So if you can imagine if you had a forest with some really good single track trails and you had like a country loop around, usually they're in the forest. So there's usually a block of country riding around it that might be paved or gravel. So I also like doing 30 minutes of tempo, but steady, steady tempo on the road, on the mountain bike, of course, and then hit the trails, but ride at race pace. Then back on the road, 30 minutes of tempo then hit the trails and go race pace and kind of flip-flop between road steady and mountain bike racing, road steady, mountain bike racing. And depending on the type of person you're dealing with, it could be anywhere from two hours to four hours of that kind of training. So that's another sort of favorite that I really like. It's one thing to be able to do the skills work when you're feeling fresh, but what you're doing is you're fatiguing the athletes and then saying, now go hard, now do it on trails, incorporate the skills because that's a whole different thing. Working skills when you're fatigued, when your tongue's hanging out yeah. is critical for races. And often athletes don't focus on that. Yeah. It's funny. You see, yeah, you've got your tongue hanging out or I've heard people say, you know, you got to learn to ride when your eyes are black. The funny thing about mountain biking is people, even at a pretty high level in the races, like they never make mistakes in the first two thirds of the race. If they do, it's like a fluke, but you will often see really good people you know, make mistakes in the final third. And that's just, that's focus and, you know, like fatigue. And like you said, all those things setting in. So if you, I just find if they, they, they really learn to appreciate what fatigue is and how it affects their skills. And then they can also learn how to manage that. And, 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 you know, in a non, in a really not a stressful situation, understand that they might have to be more patient in a sandy corner because, when they're fresh, they might react a certain way, but when they're fatigued, they might slightly take a bad line in a sandy corner and that's where their wheel might wash out and they lose, they lose 35 seconds. It's a mental training situation that they, they learn to deal with their own fatigue and understand how far they can push their technical skills when they are tired. Do you look for different physiological attributes for a mountain biker or is a cyclist, a cyclist is a cyclist. You all need the same engine. And then, then we work on the skills you need for the particular sport. I think the engine's always going to be different. I mean, you could argue that there's 90 minute bike mountain bike races and there's like six hour mountain bike races. And, you know, I work with people that do those two durations. The person who's very good at a long race is often quite good at a short race, but the person who's good at a short race is not always good at a long okay. one. So that's sort of a general statement, but so I general I do like to make people better at tempo sweet spot type work and, you know, doing this progressive type training, because I think if you can build a really solid technical aerobic base on a mountain bike, you can sharpen that pretty quickly and, 
in about three weeks of proper intensity training. But if you don't have this, I think, you know, this conversation comes up a lot, especially with us and on your podcast a lot. If you don't have a really good base, then you can't sharpen it. If someone's only ever going to race for 90 minutes, then they can probably skip out on some things unless they're at a very high level and then they're still going to need a base. Um, if someone's going to go long on a mountain bike, it's got a lot of muscular endurance and there's times and you can't like, you can't really pace, you can't pace yourself up every climb because they can be steep. And so in order to stay on your bike, you've got to push a certain amount of Watts. So there, that's where a, a really strong aerobic or tempo kind of background really helps them because then they can push harder without really digging into their stores in these longer mountain bike races. Yeah. Also point out, I mean, 90 minutes is still, there's an endurance component. And if you have a, a really good aerobic engine, if you have great endurance, as you pointed out, people make mistakes when they get fatigued. So if you have a, a better endurance than your competition, I would turn it into an endurance fight, keep the pace really high and, and see if you can't wear them out and get them to make those mistakes. I agree. I, I have this, I don't know, um, when I was coaching a lot of elite riders, I always found that there's this weird thing around 75 minutes. So if races were under 75 minutes, a lot of people could, uh, a lot of people could kind of fake their way through that duration. But when you got to like an hour and a half or an hour and 40 or an hour and 45, you needed a certain amount of fitness. There was no more faking it past 75 minutes. And that's where I think that the endurance base really helps. Like we know, heck, even rowers who race for like four minutes do four to five hours a day. So that's, you know, maybe a whole other conversation, but I think under 75 minutes, you can probably get away without as much of an endurance base, say like a master's rider who only ever races for an hour. Would a really strong aerobic system help that person racing for an hour? I think so. But when you're pushing three, four, five hour mountain bike races, which could even flip over into gravel, but that's not what this is about. But longer races, they, they require a lot of tempo ability and a lot of muscular endurance because you're just going to be forced into certain cadence ranges because of the terrain. If there's anything else you feel that uh, we need to let the listeners know, please. You can look at power and you can look at quadrant analysis and you can see what kind of torque is happening. But I think to not get fancy, if everyone would run a cadence sensor on their mountain bike and if they have some event that they're focusing on, if they do that event even once and they understand what they're where their cadence bins are, if they broke it up in, you know, five RPM bins and some kind of software, I think they'd be surprised how low mountain biking can be. And so therefore doing some training in the cadence ranges of that event that they're looking for probably will help them in the next time they do the event for sure. Now let's jump back to our conversation with Payson. Hey Payson, do you want to get nerdy? Talk about some physiology? Hell yeah. I want to sort of start off with a question that brings us back to one of the earlier points we were making about the, I must choose between mountain biking and road. I, I wonder if physiology plays a role oftentimes, if there are different physiological attributes that make a good mountain biker and therefore people are drawn to it. And, and everything from what's, you know, going on inside the body to just build upper body strength mm -hmm. that a mountain biker might want and a roadie, if you're into climbing, uh, you know, wants to get rid of. So are, 
Are there any reasons why physiologically you're built better for mountain biking than for other disciplines? <laughs> I think I'm actually built better for the road. Um, I just like racing mountain bike more. The thing about road cycling, one thing that's so cool is that you have specialists, different body types are good at different styles or different aspects of road racing in mountain biking. You have to be good at everything. You got to be able to climb. Uh, you have to be able to win a sprint. You have to be able to have the punch to have a good start. Um, on the world cup side, you see riders getting bulkier and bulkier. Uh, if you look at someone like Nino Schurter, uh, on the road, he would be, you know, he reminds me of a Thomas DeGent or a puncher sort of mm -hmm. style rider. Nino is never going to win a grand tour. He's, he's just too heavy, honestly, yeah. but he could probably blow the doors off of the time trial. And if he was going up the Mour de Huy, I bet he would do pretty damn well. What's interesting too on the mountain bike is you're getting more and more, like as the sport continues to splinter, you're seeing uh, different styles of riders excel at different things. So on the marathon side, more of the climber type is doing well. We see lots and lots of Central and South Americans excelling in marathon. A lot of the, the crop of talent that we see on the road, like Egon Bernal, Nairo Quintana, those style riders are those style riders that are picking the mountain bike are winning marathon world championships. They're winning La Ruta. They're winning, doing really well at Leadville. I think different, different types of riders sort of on the road, we're seeing more opportunity for different body types to excel in mountain biking mm -hmm. um, as well. I think some of it is training too. Uh, I'm really good friends with Kate Courtney and spend more and more time training with her each winter. And it's been interesting to talk to her about, uh, how she's changed her body and tailored her training for that shorter UCI style racing. Um, <clears throat> she was talking this winter about how uh, she every year continues to put on weight. Her weight is just going up and up and up and up. I mean, that's relative. She's a tiny girl. She's probably gaining like two pounds a year max, but per point being um, she's putting on more and more muscle and getting faster and faster. Mm -hmm. And that's both, upper body and core, um, and, and leg, uh, and spending more and more time in the gym. If she wanted to focus on road cycling, she's of the size, you know, height wise and everything that I bet she could be an absolutely incredible pure climber if she wanted to be. Um, but because mountain biking is her discipline, she's dedicating more time to, to developing that punch, developing that muscle mass, um, and, 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 uh, tailoring her training to more suit that UCI style racing. Well, I think you just brought up one important physiological point there, which is if you're a road cyclist, upper body really isn't that important. Yeah. As a mountain biker, you need that strength. You need to put a bit of a focus into that upper body to be able to control the bike, to be able to get it over some of the, the, the really nasty technical stuff. Yeah. Big time, big time. I mean, it's, it's funny cause you hear, here's some conjecture about, you know, how would Nino stack up uh, watts per kilogram against a, a Chris Froome or that sort of thing. And you got to remember that Nino is carrying around 10 extra pounds at all times. Um, and so it's not really apples to oranges and, or apples to apples. And you see, I mean, there are so many incredible examples of folks crossing over. Peter Sagan, Jakob Fuglesang, it, it just goes on and on in terms of uh, major talents that's, that really excel on the mountain bike went to the road, changed things slightly, uh, and, and their engines really shone. Yeah. It'll be interesting, you know, not like he's the first to do it, but 
Matthew Vanderpool, obviously an exceptional rider on pretty much any type of bike he touches. I wonder if if what he's doing now will open the door for other people to try to do, you know, a classic season and some mountain bike season because there's some similarities in the attributes that you need for both of those types of events. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think so. Um, I think Matthew's talent level is such that he just plays by a completely different playbook in some ways. Um, and he, he just can do whatever he wants. He ha- he's such an incredible bike handler that he doesn't have to dedicate as much time to staying sharp at that sort of thing and can really focus on the, the type of training and the type of hours uh, to be an effective road racer and have the depth, you know, an hour, six, hour, seven of a classic to, to win a race. So, um, I, I hope that he inspires kind of a new generation, um, to, uh, not, uh, pigeonhole themselves in a certain discipline. I think that would be really, really cool and add another level of intrigue for the sport, but also, uh, I think it's going to take some pretty special folks to be able to, to do both at the same sure. time. I mean, you see, yeah. you see Wout, Wout doing it also, Wout Van Aert. Yep. Um, I have no doubt that he could throw mountain bike in there also and, and do really well too. You have but, cases where, where people have done that, but you've never seen people be able to fully do both. Like I think, for example, uh, more my, my time frame or, or my age, uh, a guy like Roland Green, who was world mountain bike champion while he was also riding for U.S. Postal. I will say you don't see it too often, but you've seen it on the the women's side. I mean, Pauline Ferrand-Provot, she was world champion at both disciplines simultaneously. Which is just still so mind-blowing. Um, no, that's a great point. It, you do see it, uh, but again, it's it's pretty rare. Um, yeah. I mean, Yolanda, Yolanda Neff has done it some. Yep. I, I yep. think she was actually pretty darn competitive uh, in some of the road races she did, but not to the extent of, of Vanderpool, where he's literally bet- like one weekend winning a mountain bike World <laughs> Cup, the next weekend winning a classic, and it's just like, what yeah. is going on here? <laughs> yeah, it's, that's an anomaly, a total anomaly, yeah. and a, an exciting one to watch, but an anomaly nonetheless. Getting back to the sort of the, the demands of mountain biking, it would seem that, you know, if, if you were to extract a, a, a given effort on a road bike or a road uh, race and a mountain bike race, and they averaged out to about the same power, the, the composition of those segments would be, could be drastically different between the road race and the mountain bike race because the road you'd think would be quite steady mountain bike ups and downs uh, hard accelerations little bursts of power to get up and over things is that true and if so what does that do in terms of training those physiological attributes specifically this is a really cool conversation in part because we're still learning so much about it uh and in my and i should say now that on this subject this is much more just anecdotal personal experience that i'm going to be speaking to um because there aren't too too many books or or even coaches out there that are seem to really have a have it totally nailed down because it's so nuanced in my own experience if i do a four-hour mountain bike ride with three 30-minute tempo efforts or something 
and then I do the exact same ride on the road, four hours, three 30 minute tempo efforts. Um, my TSS score for the road ride is invariably every time going to be higher. The way I feel after the, the mountain bike version of that, I'm going to be way more exhausted, mm. both in terms of legs, core, upper body, everything. I'm just going to simply need more recovery on the back end of the mountain bike version of that workout. Um, and that's something that my coach and I have like sort of tried to work with, but it's hard, hard to like the algorithm. And this isn't a criticism of, of the TSS system by any means. The algorithm is just uh, right now built for road cycling. And in my experience, does not give as accurate a representation of workload for off-road. Sure. Riding. It's designed for steadier. And uh, so I'll give a quick analogy. And uh, I wish I had the visuals here of, of what you're talking about. Uh, I have a graph that I love in WKO that is completely stolen from Zwift, uh, where they take your different training ranges or zones and color code them. Mm -hmm. So you can look at your 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 wattage color coded and it's like low intensity is blue as you start getting into sweet spot it gets yellow as you get into th or that, that sweet spot mid-range is orange yellow right, is right. threshold and then red is above threshold yeah these heat we called them heat maps when we were right. doing them for a climbing series yes right. and you look at a, somebody doing a workout on a, on a road bike yeah you have some variance but you'll have a nice steady yellow and then a nice steady blue and then maybe some green. And then, uh, you know, when they get to their next interval, some nice steady yellow, but well, there's a little bit of variance. The, the colors are, are fairly consistent. When I look at a mountain bike ride, even when a, a mountain biker is trying to do a steady workout, it's red, blue, green, yellow, red, you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. all over the place. So, Spikes. and as you said, when you add that up to a TSS score or an average wattage, uh, it doesn't look like much, but you're actually doing some big, hard kind of leg breaking efforts. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. And the other thing um, that I think about is if you're doing everyone out there who's done an interval on the road will know, uh, just as an example, let's say, let's say you're doing a, a 20 minute threshold interval. Um, that's hard. And at minute 17, if you accidentally blow a snot rocket that ends up on your glasses <laughs> you're going to focus on bear with me here on this analogy please you're I going will. to the best <laughs> analogy i've heard and i can't tell you how many episodes please keep going every, 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 everyone's done it everyone's done it you, you've got you've got some snot on your glasses lens um you're probably going to finish the interval and then clean your glasses um even though you can only see out of one eye because it's so damn hard and take your hands off the bars pulling off your glasses and cleaning your lens on your Jersey makes your heart rate go up. It, it changes your biomechanics and it, it doesn't feel good. And probably your, your power is going to drop. Like you can't, when you're fighting just to stay in a power zone, you can't do that other stuff. Mm -hmm. When you're mountain biking, you can be 17 minutes into a 20 minute interval and you're having to do this huge lunge up a ledge. You're having to, shut down a whole bunch of speed coming into a corner you're having to you know your front tire slides out and you have to quickly unclip dab keep yourself from crashing and you're having to make these full body investments of energy constantly and so when you're redlined if you want to stay on two wheels you have and, and move through the terrain fast you have no option 
but to engage uh, a whole other group of muscles, uh, a whole other level of focus. There's so much more going on and quantifying that, like, how do you get a TSS score for your forearms getting really tired? <laughs> you, <laughs> right. You know, yep. like how do you, how do you put a TSS number on fighting with yourself to stay off the brakes through a chicane set of corners because you know, you're going to save two seconds. Like all of that stuff adds up. Um, and that's some of the stuff that I think both physically and psychologically adds a lot more load than we really know how to quantify yet. No, I agree. Now I'm going to ask you possibly the most important question of this entire podcast. Uh-oh. Did that woman put her phone number in your phone before or after the snot rocket on your glasses? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I don't know because I finished the race and uh, I think I even got my tattoo before I, before I even checked my phone. Yeah, no, I actually <laughs> experienced exactly what you're talking about last week. I, for a fun ride, uh, went out to Valmont Park, which is this mountain bike cyclocross type park here in Boulder. I did an hour 15. I came back and I was pretty tired. I'm surprised you're still walking. You yeah. didn't break anything? I didn't know. <laughs> I've, I mean, hey man, I crashed he's trained, once. He's trained with, he's he's trained trained with, with Jeff Kabush and Max Plaxton. Like, no, uh, I walked my bike behind them while they laughed about getting <laughs> yeah. the silly <laughs> Torontonian out to the dump. But I remember when I left Valmont, I looked at the TSS on my computer. I was an hour into my ride and my TSS was 18. Yeah, tiny. Yeah, right. Exactly. Relative Nothing. to the effort. The, the ride back to our office from Valmont on the bike trails, I put on another 10 TSS. Yeah. So how do you address this in your training then? How, how do you, you, you say your coach and yourself, you've been working on ways to address this. Uh, what specific to this theme that we're talking about here, are there, are there things that you do? Are there higher torque uh, workouts that you do? Or I would assume there's got to be a lot of off the bike stuff that you do. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is a huge conversation. There's a lot to unpack here, but for one, durability is important. It, I'm hitting off bike stuff right now. So durability is crucial. Um, I would say when you're just to give folks kind of a window here, when you're, when you're trying to win a professional level mountain bike race, and it's a, it's a truly challenging mountain bike race, there's probably a 30% chance that you're going to crash like at any given race. That's just how it is. So imagine, <laughs> Imagine a, a queen stage of the Tour de France. Imagine that to win the Tour de France, you have to be able to have a very high likelihood of crashing and still win that stage. And that's kind of how you have to prepare for mountain biking. You're, you're on the razor's edge uh, in terms of going down these descents uh, for you know almost half of the race. Um, and the chances of making a mistake are really, really high. And so you have to be able to hit the ground shake it off physically and psychologically um, and get back on the gas. So that's, that's part of it. Basically you're saying if you don't do that, if you're not right, riding on that razor's edge, you, you basically have no chance of winning because you're off the back, right? The risk, risk is an absolute necessity here. Totally. Because if you, another analogy, let's take Milan San Remo, that descent off, is it the descent off the Poggio? That's Poggio. pretty technical. Yes. Yeah. So you take the descent off the Poggio 
you've got someone like Nibali who is next level in terms of bike handling. It's willing to take risks and can pull out 10 seconds. If you're Peter Sagan and you've got Kwiatkowski with you, a few other guys, you're okay with Nibali taking those 10 seconds as long as the rest of the group sticks together. In a mountain bike race, everyone is 10 seconds apart typically. And so you can't afford to lose that 10 seconds. And so your option is lose or descend like Nibali is descending. Mm -hmm. And there are athletes out there, whether it's Anita Schroeder, Yolanda Neff, whoever it is, who are the Nibalis of the mountain bike world. And they are uh, in control descending at that speed. And everyone else is trying to rise to the occasion and hang with them and minimize the, the damage on those descents. And so that is one of the ways that those racers are the best in the world is they put that pressure on each and every lap. Um, and eventually either the rest of the riders will, will not have the energy to chase back those five second gaps or they'll overextend themselves slightly and crash. Um, and I mean, not that those two don't make mistakes either. Like they, they certainly crash too, but point being here is you got to have some durability. You also have to have some durability when it comes to just taking the hits uh, that are part of, of mountain biking uh, without crashing. So when you go off of a six foot drop, uh, what does that do to your body? How are you able to absorb that impact and then get back on the gas and do 450 watts for three minutes up the next climb? Um, if you take, uh, I mean, not to pick on it, but if you send Chris Froome off of a six foot drop and he rides it cleanly, his body is probably going to be less happy about it. He might break <laughs> in half. He might, he might break in half. And there are plenty of road racers out there who, who are incredible on mountain bikes. I ride with Sepp Kuss uh, here yes. in Durango pretty frequently um, in the winters. And, and even though he's leaned out a lot, his skill set is crazy. And he, he can do those six-foot drops and ride technical rock gardens, no problem. And they don't really set him back at all. But have to have a certain level of strength and coordination um, to be able to do that. And so that's where a lot of the off-bike training comes in also. That sort of skill, that sort of confidence, that sort of willingness to crash. Is that something that you think anybody can learn at any point? Or I'm going to just throw this out for discussion. I truly believe that's what differentiates the people who get into mountain biking very early on like versus people who get into it later in life and i'm part of that generation they didn't invent mountain biking until i was almost 20 and we didn't have suspension until i was in my mid-20s and so i never got i actually loved mountain biking when i when i was late teens early 20s but as that technology came around all of a sudden you could do this crazy stuff i was just too old to, to ever feel, <laughs> yeah. to learn to be comfortable with that, where I saw these kids going, yeah, we're used to having 10 inches of play and dual suspension and going over insane rocks. What's the issue? Yeah. What's your no, feeling it, on that? It's a great point. I do think there's a generational element here. So I've seen bike handling uh, amongst my peers get better and better almost every year. And there's this next wave of, of Nike kids that are just insane bike handlers. I have a really good friend here in Durango, uh, whose name is Riley Amos, who has won a couple junior national titles and is actually right now the number one ranked 18 year old in the world. And he's 
unbelievably fit and strong. I mean, the depth of fitness that that kid has at 18 is mind blowing. But when we go out and ride, he's throwing no handers in the middle of long mountain bike. He's thrown a no hander. <laughs> I kid you not. This is crazy. I forget what race it was, but there was a jump of some kind, pretty nondescript jump. He's racing, wearing a skin suit, just like XC to the nines, no baggies, no visor helmet, XC racer. And he throws a no hander off this jump in the middle of a cross country race. And, you know, five years ago, people would go crazy when Nina would throw a whip off yeah. of a jump yeah. in the middle of a, and there's these epic photos of, of, you know, massive world cup crowds and Nino and his world champs Jersey throwing this crazy whip in five years, there's going to be kids throwing no handers yeah. in the middle of world cup races just to stoke the crowd. And so the, the level of skill, part of it is, is technological advancement, but also the, the bar is just being raised and programs like NICA programs like Durango Devo, uh, here in my hometown are just creating these absolute monsters of bike handlers. Um, and they are prioritizing that over the fitness stuff because they know that when you're in your teens, if you just ride with people that are better than you, the fitness component's going to come and you'd rather have this vast bank of like situational ability, overall coordination and ability to save energy, ride terrain efficiently. Like that's the sort of stuff Trevor, that you're alluding to, that comes so much more easily when you're young. And in the scheme of things, I'm not that old. I'm 27 years old. I've got plenty of years left in the sport, but I can't look back over my shoulder and think, man, I wish I'd learned how to do no-handers when I was 16 years old um, and stay off the brakes one, you know, tenth of a second longer through a, through a turn, um, without a doubt the next gener generation of, of mountain bikers that are coming up are just better bike handlers. Um, and I yeah. think that will continue to be a trend. As the roadie, I, I figured out what a no hander is. What's throwing a whip? <laughs> throwing a whip is the tail whip. It's whipping out yeah. your back end after you launch off a jump. So imagine oh, I do you're... that all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never once intentionally. <laughs> yeah. On curves. I've done that all the time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, every every time I pass by a group of uh, older junior cycling kids, they're all doing no-handed wheelies up the road. Yeah, and I'm like, I, how is that? How do you do that? Yeah, like and guys, you're can't... you're 12 years old. How is your core that strong to do that stuff? It's amazing. It's yeah, a, it's awesome. Can we to just see. stick? Can we stick with regular wheelies, please? <laughs> like those, those are plenty crowd pleasing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to make a statement here that you're either going to agree with or we're going to have a good argument, but I just want to throw this out since we're talking about the training side. In terms of the actual building the engine, so let's, let's skip the skill sets, just building the engine you need for mountain biking. I'm just going to state it ain't no different from road cycling. Agreed. Okay, that yeah, was a really agreed. short conversation. I, I, <laughs> At the, at the professional level, I'd agree. The difference um, where things get challenging when you're racing a full mountain bike schedule, uh, imagine that you're racing uh, a Belgian classic every weekend all year. That's a really hard thing to manage in terms of resting into the event and being ready to go to train again afterward. In, in road cycling, I mean, we see all the time the riders use week-long stage races, uh, individual events to train for 
future events. And so they may have 75 race days a year and 50 of them are quote unquote glorified training and 25 of them are, are races that they're trying to be good for and potentially win. You just can't afford to do that on the mountain bike because every single race is flat out. Racing actually to an extent makes you slower. Like when you get to a professional level and you have to maintain a certain training volume to uh, be fit, you can't train 25 hours a week and race the whiskey off-road that weekend. You just can't. And so it becomes a game of, um, and the other thing here is there are so many awesome races these days that if I wanted to, I could race from the first week of March, especially doing gravel. Now I could race from the first week of March through the end of April, every single weekend and have it be a big race, like Belgian waffle ride, whiskey off-road, Sea Otter classic, all races that you want to do well at. And if I want to do well at all of those races, I can maybe squeeze in a couple training weeks that are around 20 hours, but by and large, my CTL is going down, 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 down. Um, and so you can't use racing as training is, is my point here. And that's one major, major difference. People say, Oh, you know, how fit were you after doing BC bike race, eight day stage race? And I'm like, I had to completely reset and rebuild. Like I was very unfit for three, four weeks after, after that race. They're just (laughs) that much more abusive to the body and and rest is, is a primary goal versus, coming out of that as if it were a training block, like you might on a, on a road stage race. Absolutely. And to Trevor's point about road training being similar to, to mountain bike training uh, at the highest level, that's exactly right. I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's again, all about volume sub threshold work. And then when you're getting close to a race weekend, you sprinkle in just enough intensity to be sharp. End of story. I certainly remember at the center, the the mountain bikers, through the winter in March, they basically behaved like road cyclists. Like we knew once a week they might go off and hit the trails to keep their skills up. But otherwise, they were training with us on the road. They would even, to your point, in March when we were going to races, road races for training, they would go to some of those road races with us to get that race intensity. But like you said, it's, it's more training. It's not as intense as a mountain bike race. And then some point in April, we just wouldn't see him again. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, predominantly what I just said holds true for all kinds of mountain bike racing, but world cup is getting so, so short that you have to start mixing in a little bit more VO2 and AC style efforts earlier and focus on that a little bit more. I think training volume, training volume is, is pretty much the same, not pretty much. It, it is the same, but for, the events that I'm focusing a little bit more on where I'm trying to be good uh, at say Leadville 100 and there's an hour long climb in the middle when Keegan Swenson is doing an hour and a half effort or hour and a half workout in the morning where he's got, you know, a whole bunch of two minute VO two intervals and then an hour and a half endurance ride in the evening. He's still doing a three hour day, four hour day, but he's splitting it into two and there's a lot of intensity up front um, because of my big gravel events and that sort of thing, I'm probably just going to do a five hour ride and my efforts are going to be three 30 minute sweet spots or two 30 minute sweet spots. So volume is same, but sometimes the intervals within them get, uh, tweaked a little bit, I think is how I would describe that. 
can I have you guys back out of the pro world just a little bit and ask you a question about amateurs? If say I'm an amateur cyclist, I am a roadie, but I want to get into mountain biking and do some racing. So my skills maybe aren't there, but my, the engine is, what would you suggest in that case? Would you actually say, get off the road bike, get onto the mountain bike as much as possible and try to, you know, get the volume, but also up the the technical skills since that's such a large component of uh, what might be missing from the skill set overall to get you to a place where you can compete at mountain biking. So I'm going to throw out a very short answer and then let pace and take it. But being in that place, did that, and I did race mountain biking for a little bit. If you're a roadie with a decent engine and you want to get into it, you know, Payson said there's a lot of different types of races out there. Mm-hmm. I would say really pick your races. Find a few that aren't as technical, that are probably a little more of the you're you're essentially doing some road riding on a on a track or fire or, or single track or, or fire type road. Start there because one thing I will say about mountain biking is you aren't going to stay in it if you don't enjoy it. You can get in over your head pretty right. quickly. And if you go jump into some really technical mountain bike race where you crash five times, that might very well be your last mountain bike race. Don't start with yeah. Transylvania, right, Payson? <laughs> yeah, very true. So would you agree, get out on the mountain bike as much as possible and, and, and yeah, hit some mellower stuff and, and continue to progress and get better at the skill side and hit the races yeah, that absolutely for two reasons one for the skill set obviously and learning to ride terrain at speed but also riding trail fast in some ways is almost like motor pacing i think it has a similar creates similar adaptations and so just in my own training for example if uh i'm gonna do i'm doing very little ucixc stuff at this point uh, in my career but i still do like going to cross-country nationals and that sort of thing because i still can hang in there and have a shot um, at a result and so when i'm preparing for those few uci style you know 90 minute races in my season um, i'll do a lot more speed work uh, on trail and get that get that pop, so to speak, back in my legs, the ability to accelerate hard out of corners, the ability to push over the top of climbs and deal with being at 180 beats per minute as I'm descending. If I'm, you know, training more for the Leadville 100 style stuff or Epic Rides events, uh, I'll spend more time on the road bike, just building a really, really big aerobic engine. But I absolutely agree with Trevor too, that picking your events is a good starting point. And, And the cool thing too is, there's such an enormous spectrum of off-road races out there uh, that if you are coming from a road background, starting with something like the Leadville 100 is is awesome. And then you can step over to say the Carson City off-road, the Epic Rides event that is still incredibly fitness heavy, but has a little bit more of a technical element, but isn't overwhelming yet. And then you go to maybe the Whiskey Off-Road, which is next in line. And then last is you go to the Grand Junction Off-Road, where everybody runs 120 mil trail bikes and dropper posts. Um, so it's a, it's a spectrum. And uh, I would agree with Trevor that starting on the, the, the more fitness-based side of the spectrum is probably a, a good call. 
Let's check back with Jeff Kabush and Joe Lowell on the basics of bike setup, from your cockpit to suspension tuning to tire pressure. You both have so much experience riding bikes, working on bikes, setting up bikes. But if you could think back to a time when you were less experienced, walk me through and walk our listeners through the basics of mountain bike setup. And I'm talking everything from seat height relative to a road bike, should it be higher or lower? Lever placement, does that come down to personal preference? Bar width, stem length, all those types of things. So Joe, why don't we start with you? What Do you have any rules of thumb when it comes to basic bike setup? Oh, I have lots of lots of basic rules. Something worth pointing out though is I've been riding bikes since the early 90s. And if you compare a bike from the 90s to a bike now, they are so drastically different. When the boom was starting, so many people were thinking this is a really cool thing and they jumped on these bikes, but they had really short top tubes, high stems, narrow bars, and people were just going over the bars left and right, breaking collarbones. That was like the go-to broken bone is, is a collarbone. Right. But um, so then, you know, we, we tried to figure out we need to get our weight further back just to compensate for these bikes that we just didn't have it figured out yet. But if you fast forward to now and 27.5 wheels and 29er wheels, it's a lot different. So for anybody who's listening that dabbled with mountain bikes 10, 15 years ago, there's some things will we'll translate over, but you really are in a whole new ballpark. And for the, the younger generation coming up, you are so lucky. Yeah, spoiled. We really paid our dues with some horrible bike design and geometry. The basics now, you can count on the, the bigger wheels are going to help a lot, but most of the frames are going to a, a longer cockpit positioning. So you have a, a shorter stem. And so your your overall weight, your goal is to get it pretty well centered over the bike. Um, you don't necessarily want to be favored too far forward, too far back. Obviously, if you're really into cross country and, and that's your focus, you're going to put your position a little more forward on the bike. You'll go with a little bit longer stem and uh, your saddle is going to be a little bit more forward. But some little things to, to think about is like lever angle. I tend to want to set up my levers for a comfortable position when I'm on the bike, but I want to think about when I'm going to be in a more dangerous situation, which is more of a, a, a steeper downhill. Mm -hmm. If I set my levers where they're real comfortable, where they're kind of angled down, maybe 45 degrees, and I'm just cruising on the flat, that's fine. But as soon as I start going down a steep hill, all of a sudden those levers are pointed really low. And the problem with that is you'll go to reach for those levers and you'll kind of rotate your elbows and your wrists to get to the lever and you start unnaturally putting your weight forward and it can put you into a vulnerable position. So if you're going to be doing a little bit more aggressive downhill stuff, you want to think about what that position on the bike's going to be when you're in those situations. So I just see a lot of people dropping their levers really low right off the get-go, and that's something I hesitate to say that's okay. It may feel good when you're on the flats, but think about what you're going to be on the steeps. Seat height, general rule of thumb, is put it to where you think it's the highest point, put your heels on the spindle and pedal backwards while seated with your you know, leaning against a wall or something or, or someone holding you up and just make sure that your hips aren't dipping. You want to make sure they stay nice and stable. 
and I keep bumping my seat height up until I get to a point where I can backpedal with my heels on the spindle and, and not rotate my, my hips. And uh, so that's like the quick guideline, you know, stem length and saddle position is, is a little bit more in just what you're trying to do. If you're just all around trail rider, you'll probably want to migrate to a little bit shorter stem and your saddle a little bit further back. So it does de- depend on, on what your main goals are. Maybe if one of you could uh, chime in and talk about this uh, evolution towards longer, longer top, but shorter stems and what that does in terms of control. Yeah. I mean, I've always been, uh, I guess an early adopter of the water bar and, um, the kind of overall geometry, as Joe mentioned earlier, has been pretty crazy evolution, but yeah, I mean, we started with, with a lot of the geometry brought over from the, the roadside with skinnier bars and super long stems, which kind of put the weight really far over the the front front axle which was great for climbing but the bikes have gotten more capable the stability and control has really come a long way with those those longer longer geometry really kind of centers the body as far as stability behind the the front axle and the wider bar gives you a lot more control and power and the technical stuff just uh yeah putting your your body much more in the the sweet spot and the balance between the the front and rear axle for for technical riding, uh, I think the, the early bikes were much more centered about around efficiency and, and climbing and the uh, the handling of the, the bikes now with the modern geometry is, is pretty incredible. Even the, the shorter travel bikes, what you can ride on them is, is pretty incredible. Do you have a rule of thumb for bar width? That again, depends a lot on where you're riding. You got to think about the longer or the wider the bar, the more leverage you've got. So you know, a, a little bit of input is going to move the wheel more. I like to be out there to have lots of power because we got bigger wheels now. So there's more centrifugal force. So if you have too narrow of a bar, the, the wheel can start putting a little too much feedback on you and it's not feeling so comfortable. But if I'm riding a lot of open terrain, I'll, I'll go for, for a pretty wide bar. Like it's, you know, an 800 millimeter wide bar, I'm pretty darn comfortable on. But if I'm going to be riding in, say, the Pacific Northwest, where there's a lot of trees and, and narrow trails, I definitely will favor towards a little bit narrower bar. But as soon as you get too narrow, you lose a lot of stability and, and, and it doesn't feel so comfortable. I think for cross-country racing, there might be more clear um, things to look for as far as, you know, you're, make sure it's wide enough so you have good breathing with your lungs and things. Maybe Jeff could could touch on that but just the, the trail aspect i pretty much go pretty pretty wide um more travel longer you know bigger wheels I, I like the the wider bars but if you do feel like you're stretching out um like it's just like a really wide stance it, it gets a little too awkward so a smaller person it will make a difference so you know a, a taller bigger person is probably better fitted with the wider bar and is a little smaller person, you probably don't want to go so wide. Cause I've seen people with, you know, the five, four, five, five with a really wide bar. And to me, they look a little, little awkward. Like Joe said, really terrain dependent where you're riding and how aggressively and how much leverage you need. Like, yeah, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. So I'm more around a 760 bar 
750 bar and I found on the trail bike, that's kind of a happy medium and the tighter trails. And I think if, yeah, if you're in more open terrain and more aggressive, bigger bike, then a little bit more leverage is nice. Uh, it's definitely evolved and something to take note for sure is as you go wider bar, it definitely kind of stretches your, your body forward a bit more. So if you're making a big jump in bar width, it's, Typically, you want to shorten your stem a bit to keep your body centered. So it definitely adjusts your body position when you're changing the, the bar width. So it's something to think about the, the stem length as you kind of go back and forth on the bar widths too. Let's jump into some questions specific to full suspension and, and tuning of that suspension. Uh, this, I feel like for the average rider is a little bit of a black box. They see all these knobs, pressure, sag, damping, these terms are thrown around. They don't know exactly what they're doing when they add air. <laughs> they might not know what they're doing when they click that rebound from the little rabbit symbol to the little turtle symbol or whatever it might be. So let's have a little basic instruction there if we could. Maybe, Joe, do you want to take this one to start? Yeah, this is actually a really good topic because after I finished my racing career, I wanted to stay involved in, and I created a instruction business called Bike Skills, which is still going today. And I was amazed at when people would show up with their bikes when we did our little bike checks at how off the mark they were with their suspension. And many times I would be like, don't you notice this? And they're <laughs> like, oh, I've just kind of adapted to it. Sure. I was just too afraid to touch those, those knobs strongly strongly recommend if you're afraid of those knobs the first thing you want to do is back all those knobs off go completely open on all of them or if you or you could even go the other way it doesn't matter uh screw them all the way in so you could feel the extreme end of it and then bounce your suspension and you'll see so if you put it really really slow you'll push the shock down and it will just creep back up mm -hmm. and so so basically, it's what you want to do, start creeping that back out until you start feeling what, what those knobs are doing. So I think you mentioned the, the, the rabbit and the, and the turtle. Go extreme so you can really feel it and then start fine-tuning from there. Uh, of course, sag is super important. Each bike manufacturer has their own recommended sag. So that's just when you're sitting on the bike, how much the suspension naturally drops in with your, your body weight. Um, so... Honestly, actually, that's probably your very first thing you need to do is, is find out what the proper sag is for the bike and, and get on the bike. Maybe have somebody help you. You could do it yourself, but, you know, bike shop or, or, or at least start there. Get your sag in the right zone and then start messing with those dials and, and go extreme so that you can really feel the difference. Um, but for me personally, um, it's what I'm looking for is a balanced feel on the rebound. I tend to run my fork a little bit faster than my rear suspension. And my thoughts are when I'm going faster, I want to make sure that my rear suspension doesn't buck me off the bike. So, so I'll tend to have the rear a little bit on the slower side, but I have the fork a little bit on the faster side so that it can rebound because you have more weight on that fork and I want it to be absorbing as much as possible. So I don't want it to what I call sack out where it's rebounding so slow that it hits the next bump and it doesn't have a chance to recover. You can kind of get ballpark on just on a flat 
dirt road or whatever, bounce on the suspension, mess with it so they feel pretty good. And if, if you're doing a lot of high, higher speed stuff where you're coming across water bars, you know, that's where I would lean towards slowing down that rear suspension just a tad. But that's that's a really great way to, to get you in the ballpark. Once you're close for fine tuning, my recommendation is to not even think about the suspension. Just ride your bike, generally pushing yourself, going a little harder and faster. And then when you get to the bottom of the trail, go, hmm, kind of felt like I got bucked a few times or gosh, that seemed a little bit harsh. Uh, maybe I might rebound too slow and then I adjust it. But if you just sit and focus thinking on your shock the whole way down, it's not a good natural read. So you just want to focus on the trail and did anything stand out to you? and then address those things one at a time. I like to think about this sometimes um, if anybody's gone to the eye doctor and they've gone up, put their eye to the device that checks for your prescription and they will go through this process of fine tuning what your prescription is by changing the lens back and forth. Do you like number one or do you like number two? Do you like number two or do you like number three? So going through a process where you're not changing every dial and then making a run and then going to the top and changing every dial again because there's too many variables. If you do it in a (laughs) stepwise process and you say, was run number one better or was run number two better? And then make a change and then run number two or run number three and, and so forth. Is that, that's sort of what you're getting at here, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you just have to get it in the right ballpark, but you can't get it just right in the parking lot. The parking lot, you can mess around with those dials, ex- you know, extreme adjustments, but you just want to get as close as possible to where you're balanced. And then, yeah, then you do those fine tunes one click at a time, ride and, you know, do some more and, if you're going to really varied, you know, places to ride, sometimes you might want to creep the rebounds just a little bit or adjust the compressions if you have it on your suspension. But for the most part, I keep mine pretty consistent once I get to a spot so that I know what my bike's going to feel like so that I can be mentally ready for what my bike's doing. Simple things go a long way. You see a lot of mistakes and for sure looking, uh, up the manufacturer's recommendation for sag and getting a shock pump is a good start we're talking about simple things mistakes it's same thing with tire pressure make sure you got a you know a pressure gauge and and that can have a huge effect just uh, the, those contact points but yeah check the sag set up your suspension and use those use those rubber o-rings you see on the, the stanchions of the the fork and the shock as well get your setup how you know close to where you want it and do a, a ride and and take a look at those o-rings and see the balance i think is a big thing and seeing that those are both using around a similar percentage of the travel um if you see you're only getting 50 percent on the fork and full travel on the, the rear shock uh yeah maybe adjust and try to try to balance that out so they're getting a, a similar amount of travel i mean you can do a deep dive into all the compression and rebound settings, but making sure you have a balance. I think the biggest mistake I see is people setting up their fork really soft, which feels nice just riding around the parking lot over small bumps, but your fork's really soft out on the the trail. It can really pitch you forward on a steep section and really throw off your body position. So make sure you you get it on the trail and check those O-rings, see how much they're moving. and, And yeah, like Joe said, it's a bit of trial and error 
make sure you, you play around those those dials and figure out what they're associating the, the what they do with the feel and the trail. Yeah, you know, I, I like that he brought up the O-rings. I, I still to this day reset my O-rings constantly just to just to make sure that I'm I'm still in the right zone. They're way more important than you think. And I always had this ballpark rule of thumb that if I bottom out my suspension two or three times in a ride, I'm probably pretty good. But if I'm never bottoming out, like Jeff says, if, if that O-ring's not, you know, using up all your travel, because really you've chosen a bike, it has a certain amount of travel, you want to use all of that travel. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that that O-ring does bottom out once in a while. It's kind of like the, the rule of thumb in this Jeff being uh, having some cyclocross experience or a lot of cyclocross experience, you hear the these people in the parking lot talking about tire pressure. And they're like, "Oh yeah, if you uh, if you're running tubulars, how how much pressure should I run?" Well, you know, if you if you bottom out once or twice on the lap, you're probably running the right pressure. I don't, I don't know if that's a good analogy to bring up here because I don't know if that's the best advice, but it's it's something that is a. Uh, a relatively blunt way, but a, a good way to understand taking advantage of what your bike has to offer. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I think it really depends on the, you're not going to get full travel on every trail if it's kind of mellow, but definitely something to think about too. Like that's another thing, like, especially more on the, the more like enduro racing, there's a setup suspension I use for for general trail riding but if i go to somewhere like i did the north star ews where you're going a lot faster and harder you're going to have to adjust your suspension and pressures to a bit higher to for a race situation versus a, a riding situation as well mm -hmm. yeah it, it's important to note too that when you're changing pressures like that you need to readjust your your rebounds also and something like i for sure for the listeners like i have uh in my phone, I have like a note section for my bikes to kind of track my pressures and dial settings. So it's something to, to reflect back on if I'm going to somewhere different or just to have a reference point to remember, you know, how many clicks you had. <clears throat> it's good to have like a little note to, to reference and then you can mess around and adjust those notes and decide where you want to go from there. Yeah, great. Tire choice when it comes to everything from width to casing, tread pattern. What are your general rules of thumb here? I've touched on it before it, that mountain biking is, it's a lot mental and it's, it's what you feel good about. And a lot of times for me, looking at a tire tread pattern and feeling good about it is almost the most important thing. Um, Obviously, I have a fair amount of experience, so I, I've learned that a particular tread pattern will feel a certain way, and so I'm kind of to the point where I can just look at it and go, oh, there's no way I, I could never ride that, because you really have to trust your tires. Uh, if you don't trust your tires, you're going to be awkward and setting yourself up for, for disaster, really. I do think about the tire I'm going to use based on where I'm going to be riding the most, and if I'm going to be in a place like in Southern California, it's mostly dry and slippery. So I'm going to be searching for a hard pack tire. If I do get into some wet terrain, it won't be perfect, but I'm setting myself up for what I'm doing the most. And 
you know, dry conditions, you want, you want more rubber on the ground, some sort of a, a lug pattern in the tire that, that you feel comfortable about. You know, as you get better, you can fine tune it and decide what you like. And, and, and it's another one of those things with the suspension. Don't focus on your tires, just ride. And if you notice, gosh, I keep sliding in, in these situations, you know, then you might want to start searching for another tire. But even before you do that, as long as you've got a tire that's in the right ballpark, uh, tire pressure, unfortunately, is super important. And your pressure does not stay the same. So if you let your bike sit for a couple of days, especially if you've been riding road, you know, you got to top off your tire, you know, almost daily. So in addition to that, your tire pressure changes a lot based on your um, elevation and mm -hmm. the temperature right. of the, the outside air. So like I do a ride from my house where I go up to the top of Saddleback and it's, it's about a 6,000 foot climb. And I've got a couple spots where I'll, I'll take a, a breather and some days my pressure will be have gone up three to four pounds uh and other times as much as seven to eight pounds has gone up from where i started yeah and that's a significant difference for for roadies maybe seven pounds doesn't sound like much but for a mountain bike you know relative to the overall um, pressure seven to eight pounds could be close to a quarter 25 percent difference yeah that's a good point because I'm floating around 27 pounds of PSI and that totally changes depending on how thick of a tire you've got, uh, the volume. So you can't just say every tire run 27 pounds. It's not going to work. Yeah. Um, you, you do have to play with it with your body, body weight, but I, I try and get it. I, I go as low as I can based on the tire I'm using. Um, but if I get to the point where I'm pushing into a hard pack turn and I feel it um, squishing out or where I get into a, a rock section and I need to put some weight on the tires to, to get to you know, change direction. And if I feel my tires starting to fold, I, I start putting my pressure back up. So that's that's the biggest thing is I go as low as I can until I feel it rolling. And, and then that's that's where I draw the line. Jeff, uh, back to tire choice and thinking to your XC race days, how important was the tread pattern and rolling resistance a consideration during during a specific race on a given course? I won a lot of races by running pretty minimal tires. I mean, some of that was based on my experience growing up in BC and being able to handle that tire. But I think when it comes down to it, a lot of people fixate on the, the tread pattern, but there's like Joe was saying, there's so much more that goes into the tire selection besides just the tread on it, the, the air volume, the pressure for sure. I think the biggest thing is figuring out what pressure works for the, the course you're running. Um, like I said, always recommend getting a digital tire pressure gauge and checking that. I certainly check before heading out on, on every ride, but there's other factors for sure. Like I, um, I work with Maxxis tires, so the shape of an XC tire makes a huge difference. Um, the Aspen is a really popular one. It's more of a rounded profile. So for XC, that's going to carry more speed in the corners compared to like a more square shaped tire like an Icon. But it's a lot to do with kind of your, your riding preference and comfortable comfortable with on the, on the trail and conditions. But I think, yeah, the most thing you want, a setup is going to be predictable for you and your, your riding style. So you know how the, the bike's going to react. Um, and certainly for XC, you want to pick the, 
the fastest tie you're you're comfortable with but that just takes a lot of experimentation with the pressure and for sure but yeah i mean the, the tread's important but good rubber and then the construction that gets you the durability you want and then yeah playing with the pressure all go into which tire is going to be the best for in a, in a race situation mm-hmm. what about um something that we haven't addressed yet at all is the sealant in your tires would you go pretty minimal when you were racing because of the weight that would add or did were you one that was more inclined to put enough in there to know that you were going to be well protected if there was a a a puncture or cut i mean i never really cut corners with with that kind of thing i mean um i mean it's crazy how much that just that uh situation has changed in my career had conversation i started out racing XC with 52, 55 PSI in tubes. And now I'm racing under probably 20 PSI or right around 20 PSI, but always kind of make sure things are going to function on the bike. Um, No point saving a couple grams. You just want to make sure that that things are going to work in the, in the race situation. I think is the most important. Anything else about bike setup generally that we haven't talked about that you guys think we should one point as far as like basic setup, the brake levers is a big one. I mean, simple tip I have is like with my iPhone, I have the app, the, the measure app where it has the, the angle. So I use that to kind of set my brake lever angle. Um, I run 35 degrees, but it's a simple way you kind of can check consistency and know for initial setup. But the, the reach on the brake levers is another, I think, mistake I see a lot with uh, not having the, the brake levers really far out and causing a lot of strain and, and forearm pump. So make sure you, you look at your brakes and figure out how to adjust the reach on that. So there's not too much, much strain, but it's those simple contact points that you see a lot of errors, the, the brakes and yeah, the tire pressure and the seat height, uh, make sure those are set and comfortable for a long day on the bike. Yeah. I could definitely add on the seat dropper, I thought it was a given at this point, but maybe there are people that, that don't think they need that. But I think that's probably the single most important thing after suspension. Actually, it's probably the most important. Uh, it is so hard to ride a bike down anything technical with your seat all the way up. It just puts you in such a dangerous situation. Um, sure, an experienced rider can do it, but it makes mountain biking so much more enjoyable to get that seat out of the way when you're riding down trails. So um, if you're coming from a road bike or, you know, just you didn't think that, well, I'm not going to do anything extreme mountain biking. If you go down a hill at all, you should have a seat dropper is my (laughs) opinion. Even on your road bike, you're saying, Uh, well, (laughs) no, I'm talking about my mountain bike. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But honestly, I did do a road ride recently. Um, to the top of Mount Baldy and my neck hurt so bad coming back down that I was just dying with my seat post up high. I'm like, <laughs> I literally want a seat dropper on my super cool road bike. <laughs> I bet it'll be, it'll be in the future. I think so. I mean, there already, there already are some in fact. So especially those taller guys. Yeah. I've heard some of the pro tour teams have done aero testing and I've, they've noted how much more aero it is to have a seat dropper. So I've heard discussions of them swapping bikes in the Tour de France for the descents for yeah. the aero <laughs> seat dropper. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now let's finish up our conversation with Payson. Another thing I would throw out, again, as a not very good mountain biker, somebody who went from road to try some mountain biking to have some fun. The other thing I discovered, I came into mountain biking with this mindset of seeing really good mountain bikers and how insane they are and going, this is all about your ability to go after over absolutely insane stuff and have the skills <laughs> to go over it. What I discovered as I did more and more mountain biking that actually what's probably most important is learning the ability to see a line, to mm -hmm. come up on a part of a trail where you see a whole bunch of rocks and instead of just hitting them and hoping you get over them, seeing the line that's the easiest through it. Yeah, and, and understanding body English a little bit and shifting your weight uh, in different ways so that you're not just smashing through stuff you're elegantly dancing over some of these right. technical sections and that in itself is an art form um something something that takes a lot of practice and experience and and um, athleticism really yeah yeah i mean again that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier and one of the things that i love so much about mountain biking because when you become a proficient bike handler and able to read terrain like trevor is describing all of that becomes second nature and you just go on autopilot and, and descend as fast as you possibly can. And while you're descending as fast as you possibly can, you're looking ahead or thinking ahead about the climb that you know that's coming up and you're getting in the right gear. And then you're also feeling the two people behind you and assessing whether uh, they're, they're thinking about making a pass based on how they rolled up on you, how long they've been with you. And you're thinking about the turn that's at the bottom of this descent that leads into that next climb and making sure you're in the net, the right gear. And then remembering what that turn looks like and deciding to take a line that might not be the fastest, but it's going to shut the door on those two people behind you. So they can't make their pass. And so you just have so many things going on. And, um, People, you know, think of, of road cycling as the, the thinking man and the thinking woman's discipline. Uh, and from a tactical sense, that may be the case. But uh, mountain bike racing requires every bit as much cerebral capacity and problem solving. It just kind of manifests in some different ways. I would agree with that completely. I actually had a really interesting experience just a few days ago. As Chris knows Apparently, there's this really popular mountain bike trail um, just west of Boulder. Off Tassa, of, yep. Yep, which I only just discovered this spring, and I've been loving it. So I've been going out on my cross bike uh, doing these mountain bike trails, and every, all the mountain bikers are like, why are you on a cross bike? I <laughs> <laughs> don't own a mountain bike, that's why. But having fun, and I did it on Sunday, and it was about my sixth time doing it. And there's this one corner where there's a bunch of rocks. I have the, fir the first five times I've walked that every single time. And this Sunday was really cool because I got through and it wasn't because I felt my skills were any better. This time I just got there and I'm like, there's the line. How did I never see that before? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it, it, like you said, it was a mental thing. It wasn't I got better at handling the bike. It was just uh, my brain was starting to do that those that math and look at this and go oh no go up to the left and then cut through the right through the middle of it and and you're through and and was now able to see that yeah and do that calculus 
And to kind of put a bow on, on that point, one thing that I do still really, really love about the UCI style of, of, of racing. And one thing that I miss a little bit about miss about it, because nowadays my races oftentimes are just one really big loop. Um, when you're in a race that has eight laps, nine laps, whatever it is, a, a UCI style XC race, when you get to that seventh, eighth, ninth lap, you're so dialed into the course. Um, you've spent days getting your equipment, right. Um, you've trained really hard for it. All of these elements coming together where you're just riding the course on autopilot and you're just absolutely ripping through these sections. You're, you know, literally using a rock as a miniature berm to stay off the brakes a tiny mm -hmm. bit more through a turn, like all of these really little things that you're not thinking about and you're knowing exactly the gear you need to be in and you're just at full capacity that is such a cool feeling it is such a special feeling and is the most uh, supreme version of the flow state that i've ever experienced um, and then you add in the competition element where there's someone you know breathing down your neck trying to pull like a, a high low pass on you um, and it's it's just so many things coming into play that uh you have to manage and your your brain only has the capacity to process so many things at once and so when you're able to ride one of those really challenging courses completely on autopilot just at full flight um it, it's such a cool feeling such a cool feeling it's probably worth backing up here we're talking a lot about the the skills side it's very critical to being a good mountain biker I wonder if you could walk back in time, Payson, to a time when you weren't as skilled as you are now. What what are the basic skills that you need to be a decent mountain bike racer? What are those primary skills, those fundamentals that are most important to to have? And and how do you get better at them? Is it just simply going out and riding your bike or pick a corner, ride it 50 times? try to pick a better line each time, try to go through it faster each time. How, how do you get better at this stuff? Yeah, great question. I grew up in Central Texas. We have a, a very strong cycling culture there, uh, mountain bike culture, and especially road, road cycling community. Um, but I grew up pretty rurally. I spent most of my days after school, either on a BMX bike or a mountain bike, on these tiny little twisty flat trails, <clears throat> basically now nowadays i'd call them like little skitter trails not real trails um just hitting one corner over and over and over and over as fast as i could and, and pushing the limits until i crashed mm -hmm. because that was the really one of the only ways that i had to get better and then slowly but surely i was introduced to some of the local some of the local pros and some of them were on the bike shop club team that i rode on and they were better bike handlers than i were and that is when my progress really took off was when I rode with people that were better than me. That is the single best thing you can do is ride with people that are better than you. Um, and then at a certain point I was kind of the best in my area and I, at part of it was age, part of it was not knowing better. You know, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm pretty damn good at this. And then I traveled a little bit and realized nope, I'm actually, I got a long way to go. <laughs> and so that's when I knew I needed to move to Durango, Colorado. And that next phase of my progress was not always smooth, not always fun. I mean, I had such incredible deficiencies. 
um, stuff that I just really didn't get exposed to living in central Texas. We really don't have any steep terrain in central Texas. We really don't have any switchbacks. We don't have any exposure. And so even though uh, I was very good at say flat rock gardens, like that's still a major strength for me. I was dismal at tight switchbacks up or down. Um, I was not comfortable when there was a lot of exposure. Um, and I was only able to become a competitive racer by knuckling down, swallowing my pride and riding with people that were a lot better than me and just slowly but surely getting better. Um, if I had to throw out a few basic things that um, I think are really important that folks anywhere can practice, uh, I think one thing that gets overlooked a lot is low speed bike control um, because so many technical sections require confidence at low speed, whether it's getting up a ledge, whether it's going around a tight switchback. How comfortable are you when you have to shut down all your speed, make some adjustments, um, and then continue forward? The, the high speed reading of the terrain, the, the you know, gapping over rock gardens, that sort of thing, to me, that actually almost comes more easily especially if you have that low speed confidence. But that, that's one of the biggest things is, is, is get comfortable kind of getting stuck up halfway up a ledge, adjust, make that lunge and, and continue moving forward. One of the things that I've done in this, this uh, time of lockdown, shall we say, is I, I got a street trials bike. So the bike, no way. the bike that, uh, you know, you see Danny McCaskill is most famous yeah. street trial guy. And, and there's, there's plenty of others that do it really well. Uh, Fabio Vidmer is, is getting very popular and does amazing things on bikes. Anyways, I got one of these things and I had no trial skills whatsoever, but you go out and, and a bike like that is a little bit more maneuverable, helps you understand how you and the bike work together. Your weight can do th interesting things, uh, brake control, um, pivoting one way or another. And you ride that a little bit each week, and then you get on your mountain bike, and lo and behold, magically, you're more technically skilled than you think you were, and it's only been a couple weeks, and you can do you can translate those skills from the street trials bike onto the mountain bike. And maybe that doesn't directly apply to racing all the time, but some of those things when it comes to weight transfer and brake control and just balance do come in really handy at times, anytime you're on a mountain bike. So uh, not everybody should probably run out and buy a street trials bike, but if you're into that or if you can get on your BMX bike, I think that the, being exposed to those bikes that um, are a stepping stone and a little bit more maneuverable can really go a long way to helping you apply those skills on a bigger bike. Absolutely. I would agree with that. And then I would also kind of say the opposite in a way, which doesn't actually contradict what you're saying. <laughs> um, being, being sure to spend some time on a hardtail mm -hmm. or even riding a gravel bike like Trevor was talking about off uh, on trail goes such a long way. Cause if you have a new mountain biker and they jump on a 140 travel bike that has a dropper post and wide tires, you can ride anything. They're not going to, yeah, they're not going to pick up bad habits, but they're also going to have to kind of skip some of the basic stuff that as terrain gets more challenging um, are going to expose weaknesses. So 
I think one of the, the very best things, and taking this to an extreme, I think riding a single speed off-road can also be really good because it requires you to problem solve on the fly, uh, teaches you about carrying momentum, um, kind of handicapping yourself in a way can be super, super beneficial. Yeah, I call those rides riding with not enough bike. And you'll you'll mm-hmm. go out there and you'll do that. You'll take your cyclocross bike or your gravel bike and you'll take it on single track trails where it might be a little rockier than you'd like to be or a little rootier or the descents are a little nastier than you would normally ride on that type of bike. But it helps you with identifying the right line. It helps you learn how to float over stuff rather than mashing through it. If you just have a, a trail bike with a lot of travel and fat tires on it, you can smash through everything and you're not going to blow a tire. You're not going to be very delicate or elegant at any of that stuff. But t- doing it with, quote, not enough bike helps you really understand what can be done, what how you should do things, and uh, helps you progress. Absolutely. Was there anything that we didn't cover, Payson, that you think we should? Or Maybe one last thing to to, to clarify or let people know is that I still do train predominantly on the road just because from a training volume standpoint, you can't, you can't do a 25 hour week on the mountain bike and then do it the next week. Also, uh, you can on the road. Um, and mountain biking is what I love most. And I, I still do it, you know, at least a couple times a week, but it's almost used as a, as a training tool in a way when, you know, speaking of actually training the engine, it is almost like motor pacing sometimes. Um, and as long as you're keeping your skills up and developing your skills, because like we talked about, we've got all these dang kids throwing no handers in the middle of XC races now. <laughs> as as long as you're you're taking care of those basics, where you really get fitter and stronger, uh, is on the road still. That's where you build a really big aerobic engine, um, and and you can do that on the mountain bike, but it just has a little bit different impact on your body and. Long story short, you got to do both. Well, you haven't been our main guest before, but you are a fan of Fast Talk, so you know you. we like to close out the, each episode with our take-home messages, one minute on the clock, sort of encapsulate everything we've talked about today, bring in any new stuff that you'd prefer to bring in as your take-home message. Take it away, Payson. I think one of the main things is mountain biking does have something for everyone. Uh, there are lots of different disciplines out there. And within those disciplines, there's lots of different types of courses. Although there seems to be a trend of folks picking one or the other, that really doesn't have to be the case. I think they can complement each other big time. I think riding and racing your mountain bike can make you a better road racer. Racing and riding your road bike will make you a better mountain biker. Um, And if you really want to to maximize your potential in one discipline or the other, there are some specific you know, training modalities that you need to take on, um, that might take away very slightly from the other discipline, but by and large, it's still, (laughs) it's still just pedaling a bike. Um, and if you're a road cyclist getting out on the mountain bike and, and enjoying some trail might be the sort of breath of fresh air now and then that keeps the motivation up. Uh, and you never know, you may fall in love with it and, uh, maybe I'll see you on a start line at some point hopefully later this year or next. (laughs) Hopefully. Trevor, what do you think? 
So I'm going to start by saying, notice we didn't talk a ton about training, and part of that's because all our previous episodes where we talked about training, that really applied to, to roadies and mountain bikers. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say if you are a serious mountain biker and want to hit your highest level, I think you do need to do a lot of your training on the road mm-hmm. to, to get that steadiness. Uh, so the second half of my one minute here is to talk to people like me who enjoy mountain biking but are not gifted in the skills or the fearlessness side of things, mm-hmm. is if you try this, ease in. Keep it fun. Uh, try some easier races. Go out on some easy trails and just enjoy it and learn the lines, learn that that mental calculus. I had the experience where, as uh, having not been on a mountain bike for a while, I went out with some top pros, and it was one of the worst days of my life, <laughs> and I hated it so much, I didn't touch a mountain bike for years. Right. Then I went and did a pretty non-technical mountain bike race, and went, wow, this is fun, and raced an entire season of mountain biking, because it- I found the, the way to ease it. It's like the Goldilocks principle. You went Initially, you went way too hot. And then yes. you found the one that was just right. Chris, you? I, I'd, I'd go back to Payson's point, which was mountain biking and mountain bike racing, mountain bike riding can help you on the road roadside as well. Uh, for two reasons. You pick up skills on a mountain bike that definitely apply only to mountain biking, but you also pick up some things, some innate qualities, some general sensations when it comes to handling a bike that can be applied and improve your your road handling skills as well so i think that is a a great thing to do to to get out there to uh, hone those skills that carry over onto any bike really and then the other thing that you know since the, the assumption here is we're talking to mostly roadies getting out on a mountain bike is one of those fun things that you can do when you need a break from you know, rigid or very structured road training. And it's still riding a bike, but it can be so much more enjoyable, more relaxing, getting out onto nature. So that is the other benefit I see when it comes to mountain biking and just getting out more on that bike. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. Find us on social media. We're at Real Fast Labs. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Payson McKelvin, Jeff Kabush, Joe Lawwell, Steve Neal, and Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.